Blog Talk Radio. Sunday evening, everyone, and welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Happy Ides of March, Bill. How are you? Doing great, buddy. How are you, man? I'm doing well. I'm uh, ready for March to be over and for some uh, nice spring weather to be here. How about yourself? What's going on down in Texas? Yeah, we're just uh, we're getting over the. We had four inches of snow a week ago, uh, but that's over and done, and we're. Uh, Again, like you said, ready for March, ready for spring, ready for a little March Madness basketball, my favorite time of year. So uh, it's all good from here on out. I understand. Who's your pick? Who's going all the way? Uh, I mean, how can you go against Kentucky undefeated? Uh, But uh, I think somebody will bring them down. I'm just not prepared to say who. You think it'll be early or late? I'm (laughs) – Actually, I'm going to go for Stephen F. Austin, the Lumberjacks. They're my alma mater down here in Texas. They're a 13 seed. I think they're probably going to take it all. Okay. There you go, people. <laughs> How about you, buddy? Place your bets. Uh, i got to go with Maryland. Um, they're yeah, they're playing much better than I, I ever expected this year. So, I'm sorry. Yeah. They're, they're doing great. Yeah, they're doing better than they have been the past few years, so. At least it's worth watching. Worth watching a little bit of the game. Hey, can you believe we're gonna after? I think this is maybe our seventh or eighth show. And we're gonna have our first roundtable. I can't believe it, and it is a roundtable to listen to. We have uh, three very experienced condor keepers waiting to come on. Um, you know, Bill, it was weird when when Trooper was here. I felt like you know we you and I, of course, it was a black tie event for for the both of us. Um, and then normally with everybody else, I kind of I'm pretty casual. But for some reason, I felt like I had to, you know, be business casual tonight and maybe wear you know khakis and and you know, nice you know ironed my shirt. It's nice and crisp. And I don't know why. I just felt like I had to do that tonight. That's because the ladies are on. <laughs> could be, could be. So what's going your on? Best foot forward, buddy. That's right. Uh, in my small little, uh, neck of the woods, um, you know, we talk a lot, so you probably know I'm day 35 of my, uh, one chondro clutch this year. Uh, all 24 eggs are looking good. I'm just, uh, you know, antsy every day, uh, just keeping my fingers crossed, but everything looks good. Starting to get some nice condensation in the egg boxes. The temperatures are just perfect. The eggs are nice and plump, so... I'm just keeping my fingers crossed and hoping to get uh get 24 
beautiful little Neos hatch out in a couple weeks. That's a good feeling. It's a great feeling, actually. Mm-hmm. Good deal. How about good you? Um, just kind of have same thing. I have a clutch maybe a few days ahead of yours in the incubator, just kind of, you know, waiting for that to happen. And I was thinking that my season was over as far as chondros, but it looks like I have a female who's maybe developing follicles. So who knows? I might have a late clutch this year. And that's it as far as chondros for me. Doing a couple other little yeah, projects I, on the I, side, but. I saw that, and um, I'm, I don't want to uh, spring anything uh, un, uh, untold on our guests, but maybe we can talk about, I know some people do some chondro spring pairings, and you know maybe if you don't get your chondros to go in the, in the winter, then you can uh, breed them and try to pair them in the spring. So maybe our guests could, could address that, or maybe you can address it um, uh, maybe later on in the show. Absolutely. Great idea. Great idea. You know, what you know, the, uh, we always we want to talk about it. Yeah, we want to talk about a couple MVF things. I wanted to mention one thing that's uh, not on the MVF. You know, Tinley, the Tinley show was uh, this weekend, oh, yeah. uh, Tinley Park show. Right. It's a huge NARBC show. You're familiar with it, right? Right. I am. Well, I I, am. I messaged I messaged our friend Owen McIntyre today, and I said, Owen, give me uh, an update on what's going on intently concerning you know the chondros who's there what what chondro keepers breeders are there uh, and i'll pass along a word and he messaged me back and he said there were no chondro breeders at tinley zero wow and i said how, how how can that possibly be he said there were some farm some farm animals there but not a single chondro breeder at tinley and arbc and that just shocked wow. me Interesting. Does that surprise you? Well, I I am. I would expect at least maybe one or two to be there at least. Um, well, Bill, you'll have to go next year in March. <laughs> well, I've got I've got the NARBC in my backyard in Arlington. I mean, so right. I try to represent down here. But how are we going to continue to you know to promote our passion if if we can't get any Condra people to attend one of the top four reptile shows in in the country? Yeah, it's a, you know, that's a great question. I think also it's the time of the year, too. Um, as you know, a lot of people still have eggs in the incubator and may not be willing to, to leave the eggs and, and travel to Tinley and, and uh, you know, take those animals. I think, you know, from the folks I've talked to, the fall show seems to be pretty well represented, but I'd be, I'm surprised no one's there um, for this show. So we'll have to have to yeah. investigate that, see what we can do. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe it's just uh, nobody has any neos available or or animals available. That's that's quite possible. Could be, could be. Let's move on to some. Let's move on to some NVF news. Um, you know, the most trafficked uh, post on the NVF was. Um, Colin Gully's animal, Everest. Oh yeah, you've seen that, right? Oh yes. Yep. <laughs> that is a, that's a great name for that snake too. <laughs> um, what a beautiful animal. That's his Sky Topaz, um, uh, bred to a Blue Max Jarvis clutch. That's uh, it's 2014, and and I hate to use the term 
the best chondro I've ever seen because I've probably used it ten times before, but that thing's incredible. <laughs> it is. It's unreal. Living art. Living art. Gives everyone, uh, everyone a fake. goal to shoot for. Oh, absolutely. Looks faked or photoshopped. Uh, obviously, you can uh, can see that picture on the Facebook, uh, the MVF Facebook page or the MVF forum. Yeah, fantastic animal. Yeah, he said that that was his uh, his lifelong ambition with condors was to produce an animal like that. So it's mm-hmm. good to see someone mm-hmm. reach their goal. Absolutely. He, he reached my goal. <laughs> so that's it then. You're done. Yeah, yeah I'm done. I'm just going to live uh, vicariously through Colin, and uh, yeah, that's it. Okay, okay then. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, along with the good comes the bad, and this is, you know, this is just the, con- the Condra roller coaster. A couple of people, uh, Scott Perry posted, you know, and I, this, I shudder every time I read a post like this as, as I'm cooking 24 eggs. He had 10 eggs cooking up until the last minute, thought everything was going great, and he ended up with, with two animals that came out of the egg and, and eight, eight dead in the egg. Yeah. Yeah, they look they look like they desiccated. Um that that's sad. It's a, tough to take. Um, you know, you're you and I are in the same spot right now with incubation. You you know, you count the days down for this for the babies to start hatching and when you have something like that happen so close to the end, um it's hard to take. But he seems to be taking it in stride. He's he has a very positive attitude about uh his experience. So you know he's he's already making plans for next year, which is a good thing. Yeah, and he said his females were covering very well. She's doing great back on feed, putting some size on. So uh, obviously that's uh, that's the silver lining. Absolutely. Yep. Plus, ending up with two condors is better than being in the hole too. Yeah, two two uh, beautiful red neos that came out of that clutch. Yeah, very nice looking. Uh, one of the other things before we bring the ladies on is that we wanted to talk about was the post um, that Scott uh, Waisaki, I think that's his last name, he posted a poll right. about Biak and Biak outcrossing. And I know you replied and posted some pictures in that post, but it was a poll basically asking what's the time frame for the octogenic color change to happen in Biak and Biak outcrosses. Right. Um that that's a great poll. That that actually is, believe it or not, Bill. That's six. That poll is six years old. Um, but the reason that was started was there were at the time a lot of animals that were being sold that were, um, I guess, being deemed high yellow, and essentially they were just beox that hadn't either begun their the color change or were still partially through the color change. So I think he was just trying to make sure that everyone was kind of still on the same page that beox take a while and. Um, you know, at some point they look like they're slowing down, but they they continue to, to go through a change a little bit longer, I say, than maybe a, a, a mainland type chondro. So yeah, it's a pretty interesting poll, and it's, it's it was funny to see it bounce back up to the front of the page two days ago. I didn't I didn't realize it was that uh, that old, but it was interesting that the uh, not the majority, but the most votes. I think 37, 38% of the MVF users that responded 
said it was four years or longer. I agree. Yep, they, I think they wow. just take so take the good old time, which which is a neat thing. That is neat. That's amazing, though. Four years. That's that's a very very long time. Yep, brings it brings it back to keeping chondros and breeding chondros. You have to have a lot of patience. So that just fits right into the you need patience with these animals, right? Fits right in with it. Absolutely. Well, um, man, without further ado, buddy, why don't you um, introduce our guests, the roundtable? Um, uh, I think we were talking earlier before the show. Uh, this is our first roundtable, and I can't think of a, a better three uh, people to, to have on board for it. Agreed. All right. So welcome. Welcome, Mel Kimberg and Melanie Burnell Kimberg and Robert Sanders to the Condra Round Condra Keeper Roundtable. Um so we'll start with Mel. How you doing, Mel? I'm doing great. How are you all doing? Welcome, Mel. We're doing good. Welcome. Thanks. Thank um, you very much. <laughs> thank you. So just just give us a quick rundown, Mel. Um if someone wants to contact you how could they get in touch with you maybe after the show if they wanted to chat with you about chondros? Um, do you have a website? Are you on Facebook? I do not have a website currently. Um, maybe one day. Okay. Um, I am on Facebook. Um, my contact on Facebook is Melanie Edwards Burnell, and that's B-E-R-N-A-L. Um Email is chondroaddict at gmail.net, so either one of those. Uh, I confess I'm not on the Internet as much as I used to be. Just um, don't make the time. Um, So I'm actually popping up a couple of those pictures of animals you were talking about a second ago, and yeah, Everest is like wow. Um, anyway, but yeah, that's uh, that's how you can reach me is either one of those. Um, I'll be happy to talk to anybody anytime. So just excited to be here, honored to be here. And it's likewise. Thanks for thanks for taking the time to join us. Um, we know it's. Uh, Surprise! Bill and I are surprised. A lot of people shy away from from actually coming on and talking with us. Um, so thank you for taking the time to do it. Um, You're quite welcome. Hello, Robin. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Hi, You're Robin. Doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me. We're honored to have you. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes, we can. Thank Perfectly you, clear. Um, Robin, how can we contact you? How can someone contact you if they have some questions after the show? I am usually on Facebook. Um, I'm part okay. of a Facebook group. Um, so you can try me there. I'm actually without my Internet for a couple of days. My computer crashed. So oh, uh, no. it might take a little time for me to get back to you. <laughs> I hate that. You can also yeah. catch me on MVF. Okay. Nice. What is your What's your username? What's your username on MBF? 
My username is um, Hyla, H-Y-L-A, and then my initials, R-L-S. Okay, great. Great, thanks, Robin. Hello, Kim, how are you? you. Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Hi, Kim. You're welcome. Thanks for joining So, Kim, how could someone contact you? Well, um, I, I guess I'm all over the place. <laughs> I have, I, uh, I'm blessed to have a husband that does web design, so uh, I've got a, a website, southernchondros.com. I'm on okay. Facebook, and I've got a business page on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, although I'm not a great tweeter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, you don't, um, I don't tweet. I, oh, yeah, not there yet. I'm well, I'm I'm just starting to figure it all out due to another another reason. But anyway, I'm starting to find that it's uh, uh, it's not too bad. But people can contact me through there or um, my email address, Kimberly at southernchondros.com. Kim, what's your um, what's your Facebook business page? Um, it's Facebook slash Southern Condros. At least I think it okay, is. Okay, great. <laughs> I don't ever look at the, the tail end of it. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's right. If you search Southern Condros, that, that's that's it. Oh, yep, 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 that's it. Right. Wonderful. Um, Melanie, maybe you can start out the discussion about uh, telling uh, – uh, the listeners and, and myself in particular or about how you got started with chondros. When did you catch the fever? Ah, well, wow. Um, let's see. Um, I actually didn't get started into reptiles at all until um, <clears throat> about um, 2007. Um, I'd actually started volunteering in a little pet shop and, you know, really didn't know the first thing about most reptiles. Um, had to learn quick about a lot of species, helping them take care of things, um, and talked him into going to the Daytona Expo with me. So there, I guess, and looking at all the stuff there was and kind of looking up on things, um, it was one of those I'd always... Um, admired them, they were intriguing, you know, saw them in zoos and stuff, but really knew nothing about them. Um, one of the days I stopped by the Triple L Reptile, I know, don't cringe, um, table, and um, somebody was looking at um, a big female. Um, it was back when, you know, you could actually get a female. <laughs> um, and so... Um, I, it, it just it, it. I guess it, it sounded to me that you could actually own the species. You know, it was one of those. Like I said, I was totally clueless. So uh, they put it back in the container. I went over to the table, and I picked up the container, and I couldn't put it down. It was one of those. Okay, I'm going to get shot when I get home, but um, this is coming home with me. <laughs> and it kind of started there. And believe it or not, I knew absolutely nothing. Um, so don't, uh, word of advice, don't anybody start like that. Um, but um, <laughs> uh, 
beautiful Aru female. She was probably about three years old, and I was terrified of her. Um, <laughs> but just in, you know, it, it just captivated. Um, so I popped on the MBS and poured over every single thing I could. Um, and, you know, just the more pictures you saw and the more specimens you, you know, it just, it just, uh, they captured my heart. What can I say? I mean, they're amazing. There's nothing else like them, you know. Is it safe to say, uh, Melanie, your first experience, these are uh, imported animals or wild-caught animals? Uh, I mean, whether or not she was wild-caught, who knows, you know, it's, um, right, not the not the best choice to pick up your first snake, um, chondro especially. Um, uh, she could have been farm. Who knows? Um, yeah. But uh, she actually turned out to be um, a very healthy snake. Um, uh, I was intimidated to death, uh, you know, from her um, from the beginning. But um, of course, gradually grew into being able to you know, handle her and mess with her, and she gave me an absolutely beautiful clutch several years, years later. So, nice. um, yeah. Uh, so, yes, as far as there's um, several animals in my collection that um, were wild-caught, um, I admit. Um, <laughs> I know I shouldn't start off that no, way, but, you know. No, there's, there, I mean, own. there's no shame, especially back in, you know, the mid-2000s. There were probably very limited options about uh, green trees that uh, that you could get your hands on. Yeah, well, and, you know, like I said, I, I went in it blindfolded. Um, but, you know, once once I had her and... Uh, got her set up, and, and just uh, I couldn't. It, it, it's I couldn't stop looking at them. I couldn't stop, you know, uh, digesting information and asking questions. And you know, of course, did the had to order Greg Maxwell's book, and you know, uh, then I wanted another one, and another, you know, so it was. Um, it it's. I'm glad I jumped in with both feet, truly. Fantastic. So, Robin, how about you? That's how I, I know you. We we know you have an extensive uh, history with chondros. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your experience? I started um, with chondros in 1987 when I was volunteering with Trooper Walsh. And wow. I've worked with a lot of really awesome chondro folks. So I've worked with the Barkers, and I've worked with the stewards at the barn. So I have a, a long, long, long love affair with chondros. Or green tree yeah, python, sorry. I still call them chondros. <laughs> we call that's okay. Chondros we still too. call them that, too. <laughs> Yeah, you're in Condro Nation there on the East Coast. It's true. Yeah. Lots of beautiful animals to look at. So you got started, obviously, uh, kind of, I, w- I guess not ground floor, but second floor Condros in the 80s. That's, boy, you've seen a lot of changes in um, in, in keeping Condros and 
and what's happened in the last 20 years maybe 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 you can share some of your experiences about uh about what you've seen I have seen lots of changes in the reptile industry as a whole although things seem to be pretty cyclic they kind of go in cycles animals will gain in popularity and then when they get common people will will stop keeping them and then all of a sudden they're really scarce and hard to get, as well as a lot of the regulations coming in. Right. It was kind of fun to work when it was the wild, wild west, and you could kind of right. get anything that you wanted. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we certainly heard days. that. Yeah, yeah, we certainly heard the stories at ICAST from, um, you know, from Trooper and and some of the other people there about importing animals in the 60s and 70s and what an adventure that was. It's true. It's true. It's nice to have a lot of captive-born animals to pick from these days. Absolutely. So it's, it's nice to know that you're not taking stuff out of the wild and you're not dealing with the health issues and the parasite problems that go with that. Right. Kim, how about yourself? Would you like to introduce yourself and uh to the audience and kind of give us a background on your experience? Okay. Um well, I think it was probably back in 2003 when I um was working at an awesome museum in North Carolina, um Museum of Natural Sciences, and I, we had so that museum is actually um it ends up being the place where critters get dumped off on their confiscations and the first two um green tree pythons i actually saw live that i'm aware of anyway came in from a dog fighting confiscation along with lots of other exotics um and I saw these Michael snakes, Vicks? and I thought, oh, Michael Vick's animals? And no, no. Um, this was before <laughs> that, <laughs> and I don't have any idea where he lives. But we have our own fair share of dog fighting problems in North Carolina. But and for some crazy reason, those people also have exotic Green animals. Trees. But anyway, <laughs> yes, he had two of them, and I didn't see them initially because they went straight to the vet school. Um, at NC State University, and uh, they sort of recuperated there. So by the time they got to the museum, they were in pretty good shape. And I I saw them, and I said, oh, my goodness, I remember when I was little. I I had some book, and to this day I don't know what that book is, and I loved the those emerald green snakes that – no, it it wasn't. It was more of like a National Geographic. I mean, it was real photos. It wasn't the the, the kids' book. And I thought – I love these snakes. They're beautiful. So when I saw them in person, it brought that back that memory, and I said, you know, I might actually want to have these at my house. So I think I drove the herpetologist crazy enough that he just finally said, fine, I'm going to give them to you because they weren't going to be on display at the, the museum. They have emeralds, but they do not have green tree pythons there. So um, he gave them to me, but while I was driving him crazy, I jumped on the Condro forum and drove Greg crazy and some other people on there trying to learn as much as I could, and I decided I was going to build my own cages. And so I had everything ready. I just needed 
the reptologist to give me the okay. And he finally did. And I got those two snakes. I have no idea anything about their background. I don't know if their condition was just due to neglect for the previous owner or whether they were imports. Who knows? But anyway, shortly after I got those two, um, I decided, well, I've got them. I'd really like to try to breed them. And I had not bred any other type of animal ever. And I I said, well, I'm going to give it a go. Why not? And I did, and I had 20 eggs laid, and it was a 100% hatch, and I thought, wow, this is easy. I've learned since then. (laughs) It's not that that easy. That's incredible. But I started off on the right foot anyway, which then sort of allowed me to um, purchase additional snakes. I think... um, the actually the only neos I've ever purchased came from from Rico because I called him and I said, "Give me the toughest feeders you've got and give them to me." Well, he did, and they never gave me trouble at all <laughs> ever. So I learned nothing from those two little arus, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I had some difficulty uh, learning how to feed babies from the get go. So he tried to help me, but it, you know. I, I don't know. Maybe he maybe he lied to me. He just wanted to make me feel like I knew what I was doing, and then my own babies <laughs> taught me otherwise. <laughs> so that's, that's sort of that's where a it great started. Story. And, <laughs> you may be the only person that I've talked to that the first uh, breeding attempt in in reptiles has been green trees. Yep. I think maybe uh, I had a cat growing up that accidentally had babies. <laughs> That's about <laughs> it. No no reptiles. <laughs> that doesn't count. Mm-mm. Now, I had kept lots of different reptiles because I was always seeing critters at the museum that, you know, I ended up bringing home. But never had any interest in breeding them. Nice. Well, maybe we can start um Back at the beginning, Mel, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, what you're currently keeping or what you've kept in the past, um, specifically uh, any locality types or uh, designer animals you're you're working with. Um, I, of course, started off with uh, an Aru, locale type. um, And as, as far as when you started, you know, when you start with one and you are just, uh, captivated and got to have another one. <laughs> um, when you start looking at everything, uh, obviously the locale types are much more affordable than some of the designers. Um, and I really like the locale types. Uh, and I know that we just go by what we're, um, you know, as far as I'm not going to get into the whole who knows exactly what is what, but, you know, we, we guess. Right. Um, sure. And, sure. And so I, um, I, um, my second chondro was um, a very beautiful uh, sarong. He was just, you know, um, I guess to me a um, cherry uh, specimen of that locale type. Um, you know, and so I thought, okay, I um, would like to get one good specimen of several different locale types. I, I just was going to start with that. So 
you know, and that was kind of how it went for me. So, um, Bioc, I've got a really pretty Maroki, and um, and then Cyclops ended up being my favorite locale type, I guess. So, um, nice. naturally, at the time, in order to get a Cyclops, uh, it was an import. Um, you know, I, I know there's a few out there that have already started producing second generations of um, Cyclops, um, but so at the time I wanted a pair and, you know, I had to have um, um, uh Cameron had some for sale, grabbed a pair, and, um, uh-huh. you know, um, so that was kind of the basis of my collection. Did they eventually, yeah. did the Cyclopses eventually breed for you? Oh, they did, yes. Um, first they were yeah. stolen. Yeah. That's another whole story. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so which made the clutch even more special because I managed to uh, get them back. And, um, yes, um, they did produce. Uh, she had 20 eggs. Um uh, would have had a 50-50 split of red and yellow, but I had several of the reds um, uh, dead in the egg. But um, So I had a nice, and, and some of them turned out, you know, amazing. Uh, I've got one now, little baby, that is, well, I said baby, it's what, like three. Um, <clears throat> Zeppelin is um, very mighty, uh, so... You know, it's one of those you can get really nice-looking stuff from plain old locale Cyclops, you know. So um, I've always always liked the locale types. Uh, And I do have a couple of designer animals um, on another trip to Daytona. Of course, Rico talked me into one of the Mac animals out of those really nice clutches that he first started off um, taking care of and, selling off, and so um, I have a, a, a really nice looking um, uh, high might phase animal there. Um, of course, they didn't keep any records, so it's not like, uh, we can call it a designer, but I don't know if that's correct. Um, and, and then, of course, I do have a few other animals from Rico um, that are designer, um, and then I have a lot of uh, the offspring that I've kept from the few clutches that I've had. So I haven't really acquired, I, um, I shouldn't say I, we, um, haven't really acquired a lot of new animals, um, but in the last last year, um, let's see, we did uh, get several animals from Rico, um, and then I was fortunate to get um, a baby from um, Mr. Iherb himself. So I've got a <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I'd always always coveted um, Inkerton Fizzlebottom, uh, you know. So uh, Inky, I call him, and um, so that was a surprise Christmas present um, Christmas before last. And uh, but that's that's about it. Is the rest of them are just you know have um, Bioc and um, Jaipura, um, 
and a couple of Mick crosses, you know, but um, that's the, yeah, that's, so, that's, that's, that's interesting that you've wanted you wanted to kind of collect one of all localities. A lot of people, they they just, you know, they specialize or they, they're really drawn to right. one or two locality yeah. types and they, they, they focus on that. But it's interesting to hear that you that you wanted, you just wanted kind of one of everything. That's neat. I did. And, you know, it, it's, they they all have their own, you know, uniqueness about them. And so to, to find really good, representations i guess was was a goal um and um you know so and i and i felt like i did well in finding several certainly not all because who knows how many of them there are and then you know like i said it's just a guess but sure. yeah i got sure. um right um right um, uh, uh robin how, how about uh, oh, oh, i'm i'm sorry mel no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. We're good. I, I was just going to pass it along to um, Robin about as far as what she's currently keeping or what she's kept or what she's interested in. Well, I started off um, obviously working with Trooper's Collection, which was mostly designers, but had, at, you know, in the 80s it was F1s from wild-caught animals for the most part. Right. Um, but he was certainly keeping pedigrees on stuff and, and was shooting for certain looks. And so I tend to be attracted to the designers, although I do at home I keep a couple localities. My first snake that I ever purchased for my personal collection was a beautiful Biak from Rico. And then Trooper felt the need to... Um, pass along another animal because he wanted me to have something from his collection. Um, so that was a designer, and I've kind of just mixed and matched from there. So I get to work with lots of cool designer stuff at work, and then I get to come home and play with my own stuff kind of here, <laughs> which is lots of fun. And it's it's wonderful fun to play with Trooper's animals. He left me with, you know, beautiful genetic stock to play with. It's just kind of eerie to hear people that have kept animals for so long talking about they got their initial animals or their first animals from Trooper or Rico. It's just, uh, you know, it's there, there's a, like the two guys, you know. I The this, this story is a little bit funny. So I, I decided that I wanted to keep a collection at home and um, – and I didn't quite know how to go about it. So I wanted to buy an animal from Rico, but I didn't want to tell him that it was for me because I was afraid that he would feel the need to give me the friends and family discount. Right. <laughs> so would you I went have? To web- <laughs> right. So I went to the website and I tried to put it in my shopping cart. <laughs> and he didn't have a shopping cart. <laughs> So I had to call him, and I said, you know, I tried to put this in the shopping cart, and he he laughed at me and said, you know, I I bet who I sell to. And I said, well, will you sell to me? And he's like, of course. And I said, great, do me a favor. And he said, what? And I said, don't tell Trooper. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he laughed. And uh, he called me and he said, hey, I've got your animal. Um, come pick it up. And I said, where are you? And he said, at Troopers. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Rico. So I went over and we were sitting at the dining room table and we had had dinner, and Rico reaches into his backpack, and he pulls out a deli container, and he slides it across the table to me. And Trooper says, what's that? And I said, uh, it's an animal that I just picked up from Rico. And he said, you're keeping animals at home? And I said, yes. And he said, great, I'll go downstairs and pack one up for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I left with two animals that night. Wow! And that started the uh, that started the hardcore addiction. That's an envious story from a lot of a lot of listeners, I'm sure. <laughs> so that's how I got the personal collection started. Kim, what about you? Well, uh, I mean, I I didn't necessarily choose those first two. You know, I mean, I didn't go out shopping for those first two I ended up with. Um, but I knew um, that I really liked. I didn't know anything about locality types, but I knew what I liked to look at. I really liked the initially the uh, the nice dark green with a blue dorsal stripe, and that's two that I ended up with. Uh, but then I saw high yellow or tricolors, and I sort of fell head over heels for those guys. So um, the first pair that I ever bought was from Janet Hickner, um, and she had Rodney and Sissy, um, this gigantic six-and-a-half-foot overweight. <laughs> Big blue. Well, she wasn't blue at the time, but she is now um, female and Rodney being a Fiat cross and you know looking at them you would never think they produce high yellow or tricolor but they they did um and I sort of um fell in love with that high yellow tricolor look um, so that's sort of what I gravitate towards myself but uh I I mean I have um one of those arus that I got from Rico, because I just I can't get away from that lovely green that they have. Um, I used to think I wanted to try to produce some high white arus, but that is so tough to do. There are only a few people out there that get consistent results. So um, I decided uh, once I saw summer was probably that you know the Julian had was just spectacular to me, and I thought ah. That's what I want. Although I'd really like to add that blue dorsal stripe that I really like, and I'd like this and like that. So, that, you know, I've sort of just bred over the years what I like to look at. Um, but I also understand, I really appreciate it. I have a lot of people come to me and say, I'd really like to get into green tree pythons, but I can't afford designers. So I, I try, although these last couple of years I've, I haven't had a lot of success with that, to also produce some of the more entry-level snakes so that people who want to get into green tree pythons and are trying to purchase from a, a breeder have that option. 
Um, not always successful at that, but I, I do try. And then that was um, something Rika was good at. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, but yeah that was something Rika yeah, was no, great. Yeah, no, no, that's at. true. My thoughts yeah, exactly. That's absolutely true. Uh, and my thoughts exactly. It's great that you do I'm that. Glad that's to, so important. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. That's a huge consensus. And Buddy and I, from really one of the uh, main reasons we wanted to do this show was to get new people involved in chondros and debunk some of the myths about keeping them. And obviously you can't expect somebody to spend a 1000 or $1,500 on their no. first green tree. So it's right. awesome that everybody on this, I think on this conversation feels the same. It's important that we keep uh, healthy um, locality type, you know, animals that we can get to new keepers at a, at a relatively reasonable price. It's, it's very important, uh, I think, to all of us. That's definitely. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Yeah, because I always feel bad when people get in touch with me and say, I really want a snake like this that's more of a a locality type or just a particular look and uh, and it's not a designer and I I can't fulfill that wish. (laughs) I wish I could, but um, anyway, that's sort of been uh, my goal and then I got Joe Black and I've waited, I don't know how many years I've had him now, like forever, seven years or something like that, to finally get him to breed for me. So um, my love affair of blue and melanistic, I mean, he was sitting there staring at me along with the females I wanted to breed with him, but I wasn't getting any results. So I enjoyed looking at them, but now that I have babies from them, I can see why people like the blue and the black. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely good to have eye candy around. Oh yeah. Absolutely. If I don't enjoy looking at my collection, at the end of the day, why am I why am I doing it? Exactly. Because it's 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 hard work and the you know, the money you get for it is is nice, but it's not you know, at the end of the day, that's not why we're doing it. Exactly. Right. All right. Well, so um, I'll ask I guess, the next group oh, question. Go ahead, buddy. Um, so we'll we'll venture off into uh, move away a little bit from husbandry, and then we'll come back to it. So um, as all of us here know. Reptile keepers are considered, I guess, by most mainstream Americans to be weird, and I guess we they assume if you tell them you keep snakes and they don't, they assume you have a certain look about you or a certain profession. Um, I know a lot of people are surprised when I say, "Oh, I, I have snakes," and they look at me like, "Oh, you don't look like you'd be a person that have snakes." And I kind of take a step back and I was like, you know, ask what they would mean by that, and they're like, "Well, you know, we have this picture and it's." Uh, the image that I guess of Hollywood is made of like these people that have keep reptiles. Um, and so as being reptile keepers who are also women, do you feel more shock and surprise when, when you tell people, Hey, I keep snakes. No, I, I definitely do. Yes. Um, uh, you know, you're right. People tend to have their own stereotypes in mind. And uh, 
for reptile keepers, for snake keepers, uh, even more so. Um, so, yeah, when I tell people I keep snakes or have snakes, they look at me like I'm, you know, have three heads. Or uh, <laughs> what's even funnier is they'll take several steps back, you know, like I've got one in my pocket, you know. Uh, right. uh, and and it's and and, and then the um, ignorant questions start, you know. Um, I guess they assume they're slithering around in my house and. Aren't you worried about you know when you sleep? Uh, aren't you worried about them? You know, and it's it's uh, so most definitely, especially being um, a female, and I'm not you know um, a big brawny guy with tattoos and you know whatever. Not that that's, but yeah, the stereotype is definitely there. And so, as a woman, yeah, I, I get some really strange looks, or it's. It's they say you just don't look like the type to keep snakes. It's like, well, what is right. that type? You know, uh, you, you, you anybody can keep anything, but um, so it's it's definitely out there. Um, it'd be nice if it was getting better, but I don't think it is. Um, I've, okay. I've, uh, there's a few people at, at my current job that I they don't even want to hear me say the word snake. Uh, you, know, you know, it's just they just freak out. It's kind of like, okay, um, that's interesting, but it's you know, so yeah, you get all kind of strange looks and strange vibes. Right. It is what it is. Not you, Robin. I I actually don't get that much um, of a difference, it's mostly because I do hang out with animal people. I think and okay. And I think that keeping exotics of all different types, reptiles, birds, even exotic mammals has become kind of more normal these days. I I thought about the question and and I and I usually don't get a lot of um questions or even really curious glances from people men or women who think that it's odd that I keep snakes. Back when I was starting out, the people who thought that it was the strangest thing that for a female to be a reptile keeper were the male reptile keepers. They kind of acted like that was very odd, that huh. it was odd to see a, a female in the reptile house or it was odd to see, you know, a female at the show who was, purchasing or or even you know I kind of came in even a little bit before the shows so right. you know to to have a subscription to a reptile magazine or to to go to a conference there there weren't that many females there so the guys the guy reptile keepers thought that the girls were pretty strange and interesting <laughs> But yeah, for the most part, I don't get too much pushback. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so well, that's, okay, this is Kim, and I, I'm sort of with um, Robin on this. I, I've been uh, into herpetology since I was knee high to a grasshopper, and I was, you know, 
catching snakes in my backyard and getting bitten by them. And uh, so the people I have grown up with and the crowds that I've hung with um, through my museum time and with the Wildlife Commission um, in North Carolina, I've sort of been known as the, well, maybe somebody says the crazy snake lady, but (laughs) uh, maybe not to my face so much. Uh, You know, I think that the, the fear of snakes is so in many ways universal between males and females that I I think most everybody looks at you strange whether you're male or female when you say you have snakes in your house. It's just a little bit odd, <laughs> you know. Um, but I've worked with a lot of people that, I mean, I've worked with animal people for, for so long it's, you know, more recently, now that I've entered the mom world, uh, I get much more strange looks. <laughs> you know, they're worried about, you know, will they hurt your kids? Are they going to? Because they hear python, and thanks right. to the media, they immediately think gigantic, human-eating, toilet-dwelling creatures <laughs> that are going to come out and attack my kids. Um, and they probably think it's quite strange that my kids go running up to the snakes when we're walk, you know, taking our walks, that my kids just go, oh, look, there's a snake, Mommy, and they run right up to it and tell the other kids about it. Um, so the mom world is probably just out of fear for my kids, I guess, has probably been the sh- strangest <laughs> questions that okay. I get coming right. from that community. Right. Gotcha. So... Yeah, that's, Robin had already alluded to I was going to say that's probably that's probably not so much as a a woman versus man thing, uh, buddy. I don't know about you, but I my non snake friends or people that uh, I'm newly introduced to, and they find out either from me or or by circumstance that I keep snakes. That it's always a it's real it's really like really you know it's really you, you you know you keep snakes it's like a question that is they 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 have a hard time fathoming and fathoming and i don't know if that's a woman thing a man thing or just a a non reptile thing right right yeah i, I like the people you, uh, you they find out you have snakes in your house and they ask is that on purpose uh, yeah. do you, do you want are you going to call someone to have them removed so. <laughs> Will I see them when I walk into your house? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there there's a few that will not come in my house. Um, but they're downstairs, they're in cages. I don't care. They're they're in your house. You know. So. We gotta keep fight we Definitely. gotta keep fighting, ladies. That's battling the the stigma. I've had lots of folks come into the house, and unfortunately I don't have a snake room, so my snakes are kind of in the living room and the dining room and pretty vis- visible. And I've had people come in and be a little bit freaked out initially, but it almost always ends in show and tell. You know, it almost always yep. ends with a lot of questions, and then me yep. pulling a drawer or pulling out somebody, and then it's show and tell. And it almost always ends with them being fascinated. I've never had somebody 
say that they wouldn't come in and fix my plumbing or whatever because they saw a snake. So I've had good luck with that. How about you guys? Uh, Yeah, same here. In fact, because they do such a good good job of hiding in their cages, it sort of just looks like I've got a bunch of uh, pretty cages sitting everywhere with nothing in them. I've had people, when I had them in in our townhouse, and they were all over the house as well, I'd have people walk in and say, is there something in there? (laughs) So they couldn't even tell what it was, and then they were, you know, strangely fascinated um, and I, I do I do one event a year where I take, in fact, it was just yesterday, where I take snakes to an educational event, a big reptile amphibian day, and, you know, we have 10,000 people come through, and they go, oh, I don't like snakes, but those are really pretty. <laughs> you know, they'll actually yeah. move a foot closer. And I hear that all the time that they're just, I mean, they like we already said, they're such eye candy. People are strangely attracted to them. It's true. Yep. Yeah, I did I did have a couple of uh now before when I didn't have a snake room in another house, I did same thing. I had them in the living room. I have them in every room except the kitchen and the bathrooms, you know, so I mean yeah. there was there was one on you know, I, I had one in a cage on my nightstand, you know, so and yep. literally um you know, they were everywhere. Uh you put them where you could keep them. And um I did have a couple of I don't remember if they were plumbers or I don't remember what they were, um, but sure enough, they were in and out in a hurry and literally ran through the living room where the were in cages. You know, a couple of you know big burly guys, but uh, you know it's it's it, it is uh, ignorance. And of course, the more you talk about them and and try to educate them, then it does turn to fascination, and then you do get a lot of questions. And yeah. you know, I have had had um, garage sales, you know, where uh, uh, it happened to be mentioned something about you know snake or whatever, and and actually had a couple of people, you know, oh, can my son come in and look, and you know, and and, and you know, so you do have those that are very fascinated and, and interested and um, curious, um, and yeah. so I do think it's it's just those that aren't familiar with what they are and that they're not these um, horrible pythons, like you said, that'll come up from the toilet or swallow your child when it's sleeping, you know. And and, uh, it's fun to start um, revealing the beauty and the ease of, of, you know, the the fun about keeping them and and stuff. And... and, um, turning somebody's negative impression of them into something positive and um that's always fun. You know, you know I I hate to interrupt and and buddy and I want to get into the husbandry keeping um because obviously that that's very important but before we do I know you ladies uh, heard my comment about the NARBC at Tinley Park uh, that happened this weekend. And according to Owen McIntyre, and and he may be wrong, he may have missed a a person or two, but there was not a single chondro breeder at one of the largest reptile shows in the United States this last weekend. He said there were some farm baby chondros that were available, but how are we going to, you know, we talk about indoctrinating 
non-reptile people to to snakes, but you know how could how can it be that that we don't have a presence at one of the largest reptile shows uh, in the country if we want to spread our passion or spread the word about you know how, how fantastic these animals are? And I was surprised when you said that there were not any condor breeders there. Uh, you, you know, I, I've only been to Tinley once, and it was the October show. And you know, of course, the coalition made you know a, a huge appearance. And and other than that, I don't think that there were many chondro breeders present at the time either. Um, like you said, maybe a few. When when, when was there, that? But, when was that? Um, when did you go? Let's see, uh, it was four years ago. Um, okay. And you know, so. Uh, it was my first Tinley, loved it, wish I could go again. Um, it was in October, and um, um, I don't know whether it's the October show tends to be bigger than the uh, March show or, or what. I don't know. I've not um, done a lot of shows or been to a lot of shows lately, but um, I, I was surprised when you said that um, because, in spite of, I, I, go ahead. You know, I did. I, I I live in Arlington, Texas, and so the NARBC does two shows a year there. A year ago, right. I hatched my first chondro clutch. I had six aru babies that I took up there. Awesome. I vended. I, I brought those babies, and I brought two or three uh, adult subadult animals. I was the only person in the entire Arlington NARBC with captive bred chondros. And the wow, fact wow. that I could get two or three adult animals out and let people hold those snakes, you know, let them know that they weren't monsters that were gonna gonna tear their face right. off. Tear their it face was incredible. Off. Yeah. I mean, it was just you know, and I and I just try to as much as I can try to get the word out that those, you know, a non-imported animal, a captive bred animal, they're just I wouldn't keep an animal if it was a you know a vicious killing machine and uh so i think right. it's just important that we try to get out to these shows that that's how you're going to do it you know you're going to have to have the presence the physical presence of of captive bred animals and show people that that they're they're great animals to work with yeah you're right there's a lot of chondro myths that are hard to shake and uh i i try to do that all the time as far as you know no they're not these mean, vicious animals, and yes, you can hold them, and you know, no, they're not going to tear your face off. Um, and and yeah, the captive bred versus wild card of caught or farm bred is a big difference. Um, although I feel like kind of a hypocrite when I say that, consider <laughs> but um, but you know, as far as it, you're right, it's you have to get out there and and show them in person. It is it's I mean, and is it just that they're you know, when you think about it, are they still that um new I wouldn't say new to the reptile world, but you know what I'm saying as far as uh well. not they're not ball pythons. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Did I say that? Um <laughs> You know, so. At least in my neck of the woods, my neck of the woods, they seem like they're very, they're just not a lot of them available, not a lot of knowledge about them. 
right. you know, they just still right. seem relatively rare at right. shows, at least around here. Right. Uh, hey, I was in Alabama. Uh, I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> the um, uh, snake keepers in general are, are, you know, as far as it's a ball python or a red-tailed boa. Um, there's, yeah. yep. you know, um, so it's, they are still, I guess, um, that different. Um, and special to me, uh, and, yep. and maybe that's what it is. Is I, I think they tend to be intimidating and scary to people um, because they've heard that they're very difficult to take care of. Exactly. They're well, they're not an impulse buy. Average. Exactly. They're much pricier than your average snake. So it, it that, is. That's a, right, and they and they are not an impulse buy. That's exactly right. 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 And, I, you know, that's yeah. what I'd run into. I mean, I have not done very many shows. I haven't even been to that many shows because the closest one to me, I went one time with, with my snakes and, you know, trying to compete against the um, imports when people didn't know the difference between the babies that I had and the babies that were available over there and they shied away from mine. And, like, I'm, you know, I'm going to, even at a show, I'm going to vet you. <laughs> Somewhat, you yeah. know, and yep. Yep. and they Correct. aren't, yeah. and you're competing against yeah, that. Yeah, hundred dollars less. And I can right. appreciate the education side of it because I do a lot of herpetological education, and uh, that's a lot of time and energy to go there and not sell a single <laughs> snake just for the sake of education. So um, I, I don't know that. Uh, I mean, I don't have an answer for it, but I don't know that shows are, especially the smaller ones that are near where I am, are really the place to to do that, um, to make the biggest impact. I don't know where that, where we I can could understand make the biggest that, but, impact. But, but when you have a show like the NARBC that that gets thousands, right, and thousands, right, people, reptile and non-reptile <laughs> people, that's different than a local Alabama show. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. Well, it sounds like yeah, maybe all good. six of us next year in March will be at Tinley. Is that what you're saying, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to babysit or, or for me? <laughs> um, I've got a 10-year-old. Come to Arlington. <laughs> there we go. <sighs> um, yeah, that's the thing I right, started with with doing I'm reptile off, shows is that... <laughs> All right, let's let's move on. You want to talk husbandry, don't you, buddy? I do. <laughs> Would you like me to start? Go for it. Okay, so Mel, um, the question is, how do you cage your chondros and? Maybe just give a brief overview for how you cage your adults, your juveniles, and your neonates. All right. Um, caging. Um, wow. <clears throat> to me, this is the biggest challenge um, for chondro keeping. Uh, and 
I've changed and evolved so many times over the years. It's it's it makes your head spin. But um, currently, um, we actually heat the room um, after Mr. Phillips did his interview on um, room heating. Uh, we decided to give it a go. Uh, made a lot of sense, and so that's what we do now: is um, have a basement, uh, have two of the oil-filled radiator heaters, and um, heat the condos that way. Um, room stays about, I would say, 82 to 84. Uh, snakes the same. Um, and of course, when you change from one method to another, it's like, okay, well, I used to keep them in uh, boxes where they had their own heat source, so how do I make sure the heat gets to them now? So then we changed our caging style. Um, Doug Hartman is my better half, and he actually, um, here's a little plug, uh, builds great kids for those who keep it that way. We do, um, <laughs> we do, he does, he makes some great cages. Um, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, so we started off with, um, all right, so the cage itself needed to be exposed to the heat. So we use um, the PVC molding material for outdoor house trim. Um, build frame, screen it with the pet screen. It's real soft mesh. Um, started changing out the door fronts to acrylic for better uh, viewing, uh, and that's how we keep them now. Um, as far as humidity in the room, we have a couple of the vaporizers going uh, for the first part of the day. Um, humidity stays, you know, mid-range. Uh, of course, you, you, I don't know if there's a, a good, accurate way to even measure humidity in the room. Um, you know, when you go in and you've got to leave in a few minutes because you're sweating your ass off, then it's good humidity. But... Um, um, so, I mean, for the most part, we have good sheds. There's a few snakes that are just too stupid to do it right, and um, it, it's it's working. We've we've tweaked it and tweaked it and tweaked it. Um, I still don't think I have the ultimate cage, and you know, you, you know, you say you say cage, and then you have, I actually have to go along with purchase and you know everything else that that goes along with that um, substrate natural, paper, nothing, whatever. Unfortunately, I don't have all the snakes in the types of cages that we would like. Some of the snakes are still in um, tubs um, from, you know, just acquiring or moving babies up and, and stuff like that. So it's actually the, uh, they started off as the Maxwell type tub, you know, with you cut the hole in the top and put some screen to put your heat lamp on and um, you know, so some of the tubs just have lots of holes drilled in to access the heat, um, and that works as well. Um, not my first choice. Uh, I want to get them all in, 
you know, uh, um, the screen-type cages <clears throat> for me. Um, and that works for me because of the, the room. Now, the babies are in um, a baby rack, the, the reptile basics rack. Uh, I love great great little rack for babies. Um, Doug actually built um, a rack that we put larger tubs in for juvies and um, just, you know, we try to move them up as fast as we can to get them out of their little bitty box and um, that's kind of what we do Mel, now. Mel, any, any, sup, any supplemental heat on the babies or the juvies or is it just purely ambient room temp? Um, the babies we do, um, you know, uh, still have the thermos, the, um, yeah, the, um, thermostats and, and, and plug that in, but honestly, it's set at about the same, so whether yeah. or not it's green or not, you know, exactly. So, right. you know, um, what I used to do, of course, especially when I had them all over the place, is I had everything from tubs, like I said, with um, um, a dome and a red bulb or a um, heat emitter and... Um, then I had a few nicer cages where I had a heat panel, um, and and so it could be anything from an Exoterra type glass cage to, um, you know, I had glass cages. Uh, it's not far from here, and I picked up a few big acrylic cages that I kind of did a Maxwell style cage out of, and I've gone from natural branches and cypress mulch to you know, um, PVC perches to uh, paper um, or no substrate in the tubs. Um, and I I don't think I'm there yet. In other words, I don't think I've gotten exactly what I want or what I feel like the snake needs. I'm actually trying to make um, uh, better perch options um, for snakes. Typical, con- typical chondro keeper. Typical exactly. chondro keeper. <laughs> In other words, you want a removable perch, but then it's like, okay, how am I sticking it to the cage? How am I, you know, yeah, yeah typical chondro keeper. Yeah, so it's, it's never good enough. There's something, there must be something better. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, just, I, I think we're, it always needs to evolve, you know. Um, right. And I'm actually trying to work with uh, the, um, uh, let's see, if you've heard of the insert works type perches that were on the market for a while. I don't know if they still are. I used uh, an epoxy type uh, substance and were, you know, doing natural branches, but they were, of course, they looked natural, but they were, you know, and it's all about, okay, can I wash it? Is, you know, can I make it, you know, Mold free and and you know yeah so it's it's always changing and that's my story and I'm awesome. sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, and how I about think, you? you buddy, always... you actually. Um, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Uh, I think Buddy actually got a, a a tip from you about um, was it you started using the little sticky things in the tub for. Um, uh, I use coat hangers for. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I love those. Right. Right. Someone shared that with me. It's not my idea, so I can't take credit for it. But 
I think it's a great idea. Okay, so well, I share it all. you passed it along. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay, Robin, shoot, tell us how you've kept a lot of a lot of condors for a long time. How, how have you evolved in your keeping? So I keep things really differently. At work, I actually keep things the way that Trooper um, taught me how to keep things and the way that he's always done it, which a lot of people, I think, would be shocked about. It's pretty old school, <laughs> but it's worked for a really long time. Um, awesome, and tell us about it. So basically, Trooper set up large plastic. They're actually um, probably polypropylene boxes that are used for um, food storage and food delivery. A lot of commissaries use them. They come in clear and they come in milky white. And he set them up so that he wired the lid. He cut out the lid so that they're screening there. And then he wired the lid to the back of the enclosure. So he drilled holes, a couple holes in the back, and then he did, drilled a couple holes in the lid, and then he wired them to each other. And then he drilled a couple holes in the lid and wired a perch to the lid so that the top is attached to the bottom and the perch is attached to the top. Okay. And then, then he keeps them over about an inch or two of water so that they are constantly surrounded by water. Yep. Wow. A couple inches of water. And then there are clips to secure them in the front. And then any time that, you know, any time that they do anything biological, you just change the water. So it gets how do you change the how do you change the water in that tub? You have to take the animal out, or is there a drain? No, or? no, there there are floor drains. So you just pick up the tub, and you the whole thing tilts at like a ninety degree angle. So the 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 condor is attached to the lid, and it just kind of moves with the lid. And then when you you dump out the tub, and you can scrub it out and and fill it back up. It's pretty wow. okay. pretty old school and pretty straightforward. Okay. It's interesting. And and buddy, he's kept condors like that for thirty years. Wow. So have you seen that setup, buddy? That have... Um, am I allowed to talk about that, Robin? <laughs> y- yeah, as long as you don't mention the name. Okay. Yes, I have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm having trouble. I'm having trouble picturing it. That's why I ask. Right. Is the room and heated? In that case, the room is heated, and there is a dome light on one end of the enclosure. Okay. okay. So that the okay. animal can pick its place on the perch, and depending okay. on where it picks on the perch will depend on what the temperature is. Okay. So they can get all the way up to like 90 right under the light, and then if they move down the perch a bit. They can get to the lower 80s, and they'll they'll move their place on the perch depending on if they've had a meal or or what's going on with them. When I first, I so I worked with Trooper, and that's how he kept them. Um, I was gone from the place where I worked for a while. I came back, and they had switched um, enclosures, and they had actually put the animals in neodeshas with mulch mm-hmm. on the bottom. And 
the neodeshes had the mesh PVC coated, so you could only use a very low wattage bulb on it, or it would melt the coating. <laughs> and so a lot of the green tree pythons were having RI issues and getting RI issues. And I just switched everybody back to the old school method, and all of that stopped. So the awesome. room's definitely heated because other reptiles are kept there, so it's a it's a large heated room, and then they have the supplemental heat also. So it, it works out well. Um, occasionally I do still have, sh- even with, you know, a couple inches of water, under the animal at all times, occasionally in the winter, I have shedding issues, and I I'll cover the cover some of the um, the mesh with plastic to help animals shed mm-hmm. out properly. Here at home, I keep a wide variety of of enclosures. I've actually, you know, I I try different things, and and like Mel said, I haven't found the the silver bullet yet. I'm still looking. <laughs> But I, you know, I I've tried visions and the indeshes and and um, I love it. You know, somebody just kept homemade enclosures. Like, <laughs> somebody just kept condors for like twenty plus years, and they still haven't found the right uh, the right housing. That's awesome. <laughs> that makes me feel so good about myself. I do. I do keep <laughs> babies and juveniles in racks, and that tends to work great. But like. Like these ladies said earlier, these guys are works of art, so you really do want to keep them in kind of a display cage, and it's tough to balance out, you know, the insulative properties versus the ventilation properties versus the heat properties. And to get that balance right is a little tricky. Yep. (laughs) So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a good story. <laughs> Kim, go. Well, uh, I when I originally started keeping them, I, I had them all over the house, so I obviously was not keeping my entire house at 80-some-odd degrees, so I had various types of cages, pretty much all of them, um, have had radiant heat panels or some sort of belly heat uh, from the get-go. Now they're all in in one room, which makes it nice because everything is sort of the same. Got mostly the same Greg Maxwell-style cages, but I have the same issues, too, in the winter. Even in humid North Carolina, it's not humid in the winter, and I have issues with sheds occasionally. Actually, worse now that they're in this room that maintains a steadier temperature than I did in a place where I, you know, struggled to keep the temperature steady, (laughs) you know, in a tall sort of townhouse. Um, And I've, uh, I was going to say that caging so much hasn't been the frustration, but what Melanie said about perches, because I do have, um, I have changed different perches throughout the years and I I, I can't decide if I like if they like small ones, big ones, um, twisty ones, or plastic ones, or real ones. <laughs> and then always, you know, how do you uh, attach them to the sides of the cage? So my adults are mostly now all in cages that that I have built. 
because uh, I just really like that sort of universal pretty look when I go into my snake room. Um, I have a Neo rack that, that I built out of MDF that I hate. I mean, it, it holds, I mean, it, it it works well for the snakes, but I hate it. It weighs a ton, and it, you know, moisture always figures out a way to get to a spot and swell it in places. And so it's pretty much sat in the same place because I'm afraid to move it at this point. <laughs> and uh, then I have a my favorite that I have actually is a, um, I, got, I think it's a 12-quart size of the, you know, the, those, um, those polystyrene, those hard plastic cages of habitat systems rack that I've got, and the idea okay. was I was that, that was going to be sort of a grow out tub, but I found that sometimes I have clutches of babies that just rub the living daylights out of their heads for some odd reason, and I end up having to house them in these larger, larger size cages. And they usually take off and do really well. So I house my neonates anywhere from, say, like shoebox size up to that 12-quart size, and I haven't had any problems. I've even raised neonates in, um, you know, just plexiglass cages inside of a big three-foot cage, too, and give them the option to crawl out if they want to. And Uh it really seems, as long as you give them a, as long as they feel comfortable with it, they, they do fine. So... Um, I have dropped my temperatures a bit. I used to have a have it pretty hot in the high 80s on one end, and I just noticed that the snakes really weren't hanging out ever at that end, very rarely. So yep. I have dropped yep. my, my temperatures down quite a bit, even in my, in my racks. Of course, the racks don't have a huge, I mean, they don't have much of a gradient anyway. And um, now I'm seeing them, you know, ch- be a little bit it seems like to be a little bit more selective about where they choose to hang out whether they're they need to bask or not instead of just sort of hiding at the other end going get me out of here away, <laughs> i mean they were yeah, all eating and healthy the, and stuff but it yeah yeah yep. yeah and I, I i sort of like seeing them now be a little bit pickier about or have the seem to be more comfortable sitting in various places um in their cages so it's interesting, Ryan day, Young and Greg. I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say it's interesting you said that about keeping those temperatures down just a little bit because we've had uh, Ryan Young recently on the show and uh, Greg Schroeder, and they both talked about uh, more effective shedding and the need to uh, miss their animals more with just slightly lower temperatures. Um, and yeah. I've just my very limited experience noticed the same thing that you just said. I, you know, I had those radiant heat panels set at, at 87 or 88 degrees and they were never under mm-hmm. them. Never. They yeah. were always mm-hmm. away from them except a, a female that ovulated or maybe after they've eaten, right. they'd be under there for just a, a half day and then they're immediately away from them. So I've started keeping my, my chondros a little bit cooler as well. And I've noticed better sheds. And like you said, they're now they're all over the cage. Yeah. They appear to be happier, but I mean, I wasn't having sick animals previously, and I'm not now either. Right. Um, but I just like right. that that movement a little bit more. I want to encourage that because I don't want fat snakes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. fat snakes are a huge problem. 
Yeah, it definitely shortens their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like keeping them lean we and mean. About, yeah, me too. <laughs> talked about that, and uh, that's certainly uh, one of the topics that Buddy and I were going to ask you guys about. But maybe before we move to that, we could talk about, um, we're talking about temperatures and caging. What about nighttime temperatures? Do you guys even, um, I know it's it's great some of uh, y'all keep it just the Phillips method of ambient room temperature and and a couple other maybe have variant temperatures, but do you drop nighttime temps? Mel, what about you in your, in your Phillips type method? Do you do you drop the temps in, in the evening? Um, no, it it actually tends to drop itself. Um, uh, we have a uh, ceiling fan in the snake room that'll help, you know, kind of move the air around and the humidity and stuff. So once the lights go out, that stops, and um, it, it it tends to naturally drop itself. Not a lot, um, just a few degrees. Uh, and that mm-hmm. seems to work out well. Um, maybe like uh, it, it might be 79 when uh, you go in the snake room in the morning, uh, which is fine. Um, and then it, it, it doesn't take any time for it to heat up once we turn the um, humidifiers. Um, once we get those running again, it'll heat the room up um, and, you know, lights back on. Um right. So, no, uh, unless, of course, the weather's been so strange, uh, you, you do have to kind of keep an eye on that and, and adjust accordingly. But otherwise, no, um, unless it's just going to be, you know, super cold at night and, you you know, you have to um, tweak it here or there. But um, otherwise, we just kind of let it do itself. And so far, okay. fingers crossed, it's, you know, but again, it's, they always keep us guessing. <laughs> All right, great. And Robin, how about you, professionally and personally? I'm in the same boat. So, yeah, I'm in the same boat huh. as Mel. My temperatures naturally go down in the house at night, so the temps do go down in the enclosures at night. And the same thing professionally. Once all the lights go out, um, it tends to drop a couple degrees here and there, especially at night. Okay. So, yeah, everybody gets a yeah. night drop, whether they want it or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I have just, I feel like throughout the years I've been keeping, I've been wishy-washy about whether or not to give them purposeful temp drops at night. So, in all honesty, I have some of my cages that I I purposely allow the heat panel to to cool at night. Others I don't. But my house, like the others, naturally we allow I mean we allow it to drop overnight, so everybody's getting a little bit, and I haven't really noticed any i mean I come and spy on them at night with uh, not that they can't see me, but I'm using an infrared camera to to look at them to observe them, and I haven't really noticed any difference, so I'm sort of on the fence about it um so anyway i I'm still experimenting and I I think that either way works. If your snakes seem to be healthy and it's working for you and you're accomplishing with them what you want to accomplish, whether it be breeding or just, you know, keeping a healthy snake and not doing anything else. Um, so anyway, yeah, Absolutely. I don't have the answer for that either. 
Well, there's, there's sometimes there's not a right or wrong. It's just like you said, if you can be in tune with your animals, and if uh, if everything's going well, you know, uh, the enemy of of good is better, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. We um we've talked a little bit about humidity. Uh, I think Mel mentioned she runs a humidifier in her room. Um, Maybe we could address that next, and I, I guess the big question is is to mist or not to mist. You know, that's – so maybe we can talk <laughs> that about the some, question. Some, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there, or not and there may not be a right or, right or wrong answer, but maybe, uh, I guess, again, let's start with Mel. How do you manage humidity, and, and do you mist? Do you not mist? When do you mist? Do you, um, and answer some of that stuff. Uh, it's as far as you know. Um, back when uh, before we switched to this method, yes, it did used to mist um, once a day, maybe once every couple of days, maybe. Um, and I, I I think as a whole, we've all learned a lot. And um, personally, I um, uh, was fortunate enough to have an amazing mentor. Um, the Lord taught me a lot uh, as <laughs> the <in> Lord. <laughs> Lord Walder. Um, yes. And, and of course, you know, um, uh, I was always uh, fascinated to see pictures of chondros with water droplets all over them. So obviously that person is not just missing, but they're missing everywhere and missing the snake. Um and right. and I'm not saying this person's, you know, that goes without saying right or wrong. It's it's this is just my opinion. Um, and and it was um, he put the scenario to me one time where uh, it's like okay, so you go to a theme park and you're on the flume zoom and you get soaking wet and it may be a 95 degree day out but as that water is evaporating off of you are you warm or are you cold you're cold and right. so that might give the snake the same feel as if you've sprayed them down and when that water is evaporating it may drop their body temperature a little too much um you know, which again, we're all uh, fearful of the RI factor, um, and and that could be a, a contributing thing. So then it's just okay. Well, let's just miss the bottom of the cage instead. And it worked okay. in some cases, and in some cases it didn't. Um, I guess again, it would depend on what type of substrate you use. You know, how long does that substrate stay wet? You know, or is it getting mm-hmm. wet? Or you know. Um, uh, so now, presently, with um, doing the humidity um, in a different fashion with the humidifiers, um, we do not miss at all. Okay. Not at all. So do I you, uh, uh, go ahead. Do I'm you, sorry. Do you moist? Do you moisten substrate? No. And what is your what's your substrate? Um, um, switched from cypress mulch to, um, I do paper now. Um, we do paper in most of the cages. Some of the tubs have no substrate. Uh, keep as large a water bowl in the cages as possible. Mm -hmm. Excellent. But, 
and no misting even when the animal's in its shed cycle. No. Okay. Well, fantastic. No. And like I said, there's 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 a few culprits that um, you you know have had shed issues from the get go. Um, and it's funny too because I think sometimes it's um, uh, an, an individuality thing. Believe it or not. Um, yeah. You know, there's one or no, two I mean, animals that specifically yeah. have shed yep. issues. Um, right. You know, so whether it's a learned response for them to just say, you know, hey, screw it, I, you're going to get this off, um, or they have just not figured it out, I don't know. But um, there's some that even when, uh, you know, even when and still playing with the temperatures of the room uh, in the dead of winter when it was, you know, colder and you're having to run the heaters a lot more and there wasn't as much humidity. There are some that shed with no problem whatsoever, Um, you know, and then there's others that it doesn't matter what you do, they're not going to have a good shed. (laughs) So, yeah, but no, I do not miss. Are are there some chondros that are just poor drinkers? Do you think there are some that just, they don't, I do. They just don't want to drink or they don't drink? I do. I do. Because um, internal hydration is just as important as external, and I think that is another contributing factor as to whether or not they shed well or not. And, again, I'm going to go back to Mr. Phillips, and he always said that the way to teach a chondro how to drink is to take away its purchase. And it had to perch on its water bowl, and then, therefore, it'd figure out, hey, there's water. I'll drink it. You know, so I don't know. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Great. And uh, Robin, how about you? I know you keep your the water substrate professionally. Right. I I actually do things totally oppositely, which is you'll find awesome. you know if you get three chondro keepers in a room, nobody's going to agree because it I seems it. to work. You know what works for one person in one situation doesn't work for another person in another situation. So I think that's the I most important lesson we could ever learn about chondros. It's true. Right. So true. You have yeah. to do what works for you in your situation with your, your critters. Yeah, with your animals, yep. Exactly. So at work, I definitely, even though those guys are sitting over an inch or two of water every day, we missed every day. And okay. I I really think that it encourages the animals to drink because I see them drinking from the hose, they drink the water droplets off their body, and then if I stop misting them and they're still thirsty, they they drop into their pool or their, their water bowl and they continue to drink from there. So you miss once, a day, it, one, one, once a day? At least once a day. Mm-hmm, once a day. Okay. okay. And... The downside, as Mel mentioned, is if you actually, and I have done this, taken a temperature gun and and temp gun them before you mist, and misting them does drop their core body temperature by 5 degrees. So 5 to 7 degrees, it takes about a half an hour to 40 minutes to come back up after you've yeah. misted them. Okay. So, yeah, it definitely okay. does drop their body temperature. 
But as long as they've got a place to warm up and it's not super cold, you know, I would never miss somebody if I was afraid I was going to lose electric. Like, I wouldn't miss somebody during a snowstorm where there's a chance (laughs) the power might go down. (laughs) But otherwise, I missed. Okay. Because I think that it's it's pretty critical to to remind them to drink every day. Do and you like run I said, any kind of? Go ahead. I was just going to say, do you run any kind of um, external humidifier in the room, or it's just no. uh, basically what the ambient humidity is? It's ambient humidity plus, like I said, professionally they're sitting over a couple inches of water. Okay. So. I, I've actually watched them drink for, you know, minutes at a time while you're misting them with a hose. And a lot of times I've had them, while they're drinking, drop their tails and defecate while they're mm. getting a drink. So okay. I, th- I think that misting encourages a lot of kind of natural behavior, and so I, I tend to do it even though it does drop their body temperature a little bit. So, Excellent. Uh, Kim, how about you? Well, I actually started off with my original cages. I had a misting system set up, but I found that was too much of a pain, and I'm uh, always trying to be a little more um, efficient. <laughs> so I ripped those out and decided I would hand mist, and then I got more snakes and decided that was a lot of time. That's a pain, yeah. So, uh, so I I have a mixture of of, and this is for adults. Babies all have paper towel substrate, but the the adults have them. Some of them are on paper, and some of them are on mulch. And I have found yeah. that the mulch helps me at least here in my setup. Now that I have my own room, because it stays so much warmer in the winter, I have a terrible time keeping humidity up. I've had, since I've moved here in the winters, I've had a variety of different snakes, not consistently the same ones that have had shed issues. And I've tried um, different types of humidifiers. um, And I haven't had a lot of luck with it. So I've sort of flip-flopped back and forth. I, I had gone away from misting except maybe once a week um, when I dig my my big cleaning day, I would miss some of the cages. I, I still do miss some of the cages. I still miss during right. a shed cycle now um, yeah. yep. because I, I I just, I, I can't stand stuck sheds. <laughs> like, they look uncomfortable, and I'm sure they are uncomfortable. So I do, at least in... And my setup, I feel like I need to, but it's still in the winter does not avoid for me um, some bad sheds. So I haven't quite, one day I feel <laughs> that I will figure out my humidity issue in the winter here. But in the summer, I don't have an issue because it's, it's pretty humid. Um, even though our air conditioner house is very efficient and sucks the humidity out, I still don't have problems in the summer. It's just during the winter that I have yeah. that going on. So um, I have tried... Uh, misting the snakes directly. I've tried mi- not misting the snakes at all, trying to encourage them to go seek out water. Um, and I, you know, I, I see them. The ones that that I I know are gonna, I can tell, are gonna have an issue. 
um, I'll miss them directly and try to encourage the the drinking. But I've sort of flip-flopped back with this as well, trying to figure out what works for, for my snakes. And I haven't gotten winter figured out here yet. It's been quite frustrating. So if somebody has the world's best humidifier and wants to share it with me, because <laughs> now I have an evaporative. I was using a um, an ultrasonic, a heat-based one. Uh, it was nice and quiet. I liked it. I could feel humidity coming out of it, but it wasn't making the room humid. And now I'm using yeah. um, a cool evaporative one, and I'm going through easily in a 24-hour period, I could go through 10 gallons of water and still not get – and my room yep. is not huge. I forget how many square feet it is now. It's not gigantic. And I still struggle with it. So anyway. No, I, I, I'm the same way. <laughs> Anybody out there who has the perfect humidity, tell me how to do it. Because I haven't figured – in North Carolina anyway, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> We're probably in similar, uh, you know, I'm in Texas, but again, the winters here are very, very dry, and I have a dedicated room. It's a, uh oversized one-car garage that's been converted, and I'm like you. I have terrible time keeping humidity up, but I do have a big evaporative humidifier that keeps the, even in the winter, the and I have to fill it up, you know, maybe every other day, twice 10 a gallons. Twice <laughs> Yeah. Well, twice a day. Two five gallons. You have uh, a bigger tubs. capacity than I do, I guess. <laughs> it, maybe so, but it, uh, you know, I'm able to keep that humidity about, you know, fifty percent in the room, and then I just, I, um, I just saturate the substrate, you know, every two or three days. I mean, just make it really wet, and I get pretty good results doing that. And and I do spray in a shed cycle. When they're in shed, I spray them once yeah. a day. But other than that, I don't. What substrate are you using? <laughs> you know what? I, I use puppy pads. Oh, I do yes. that also. I heard that. <laughs> I do I that also. Those are the, yeah. Yeah, they're um, like real. They're real absorbent. They're like mm-hmm. slick on one side, but the other side's kind of like a diaper. It's super absorbent. And yeah. Just saturate those. That would be – I haven't looked into those at all. That sounds a little on the expensive side for my uh, sprinkle-pooping males. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have to change them. I mean, you know, mine defecate maybe once every 10 days. And so maybe once every 10 days I'm changing the substrate. So, yeah. and, and you can buy yeah. those things. If you buy them in bulk, they're pennies. You know, they're, they're literally pennies each. Yeah. I don't use so, any look, substrate on them. babies. What's that? I'm sorry. I was saying I don't use any substrate with the youngsters. I've had too many little ones try and eat them, like paper towels. Really? Really? Yeah. Yeah. I've pulled paper towels out of babies a couple of times, and then I was like, no substrate for babies. (laughs) Wow. I've heard of that, but I I haven't experienced it. So no water, just the the tub? Well, they they get... they get the tub and they get a large water container, but they don't get okay. paper towels or any substrate on the bottom. And I just, you know, when I'm cleaning, I, t- I take the baby out and I just, you know, wash the yeah, tub just out. Wipe the thing. tub out. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Okay. Aaron, that's, that's Aaron, lost baby, Aaron lost a baby. Aaron lost a baby to did. a paper towel. 
And then I he posted pictures of that. Ooh, yes. Oh yeah. And then, did a whole did a whole little post on it. I remember. Yeah. Yep. yep. Mm. And then I pulled a paper t- part of a paper towel out of somebody's mouth, and then I got a call from a friend of mine who had a baby emerald, and it had eaten the entire towel except for a corner. And oh literally, I felt like a magician. I went over and, and started pulling the corner out, and the whole paper <laughs> towel was coming out of the mouth. So, yeah, and oh babies gosh. don't get no substrate okay. for the babies. Note to self, definitely going to change change my ways. Yeah. Awesome. Sorry about that interrupting. No, that's that's great. That's why we do Good the show. Stuff. I mean... Yeah. Invaluable stuff. And to be honest, the only reason I'd ever used paper towels is because, I don't know, I guess I figured all the other snakes had them. They should have something too. But it's more time-consuming to replace those yeah. um, paper towels. Yep. Than just to wipe the yeah. tub out. And, yeah. And I, I'm, I mean, I'm wiping it out anyway and then I'm just wasting right. time putting more paper towels back in it and so okay that's great yeah I have always used um yeah we've always used paper towels in the babies so far knock on wood have not ever had an issue but I guess you yeah. know it it with um babies a stuck shit is even more horrifying so <clears throat> that little extra humidity of, um, you know, you kind of dump their water bowl a bit when you slide the tub back in, and and oh yeah, so it yeah. it um, stays fairly wet. And so I've never really had issues with humidity and and shedding in babies, but thankfully we've never had issues with shedding um, or, right. or eating a paper towel. But it does give, um, yeah, it is food for thought. And so, yeah, you're right. It is more trouble to sit there and change the paper towel, and and it's just as easy to wash the tub out. So, So in babies, I I dump the water bowl anyway, even though there's no substrate. And then the bottom of the enclosure is moist, and it helps Mm -hmm. with the humidity in the tub. So you can right. still dump yeah. the water bowl. It's just that sure. there's no paper towel sucking it up. Right. Okay. Yeah. True. And then you rinse Make it out when you're when you're done. Yeah. Buddy, what do you what do you? I guess I've always had it in. Oops, go ahead. <laughs> uh, no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kim. Oh, uh, I guess I've always had it in my mind that if there wasn't paper towel in there, too, to soak up that splashed water, that they would go in there and they would drown. But they've got a gigantic water bowl in there. If they were going to go and drown, they'd probably drown in that big water bowl. So uh, um, (laughs) They're not emeralds. I might have to give uh, That's true. I know, I know. Emeralds are the only snake I know that are dumb enough to go (laughs) drown themselves in their bowl. (laughs) I know. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry. I'm going to offend all the emerald lovers out there, but they are the only snake. You I just said what I was thinking, though. Well, Bill, there goes our plans for Emerald Keeper radio show. Ah, oh, darn it. 
Okay. Um, I use newspaper. And your baby? My baby. Yeah, I just use newspaper. Um, uh, I have seen them, you know, strike the bottom, and and uh, I don't know whether it's the newspaper just breaks up a little bit more easily than the paper towel, but that's normally what I use newspaper. A lot of people don't use it initially. I never didn't want to use it because. When the babies are crawling around, especially the yellow babies, you come down and they look like they've crawled around on newspaper because they have the ink all over them. And um, <laughs> so, so, but you know, I, I kind of like you know, really, that's it, just you know, me being, I guess, a little OCD about my yellow baby stain looking pretty and clean. Um, so I, I just, you know, like I said, just newspaper. Um, that's what I do. I have a quick funny story. I have a friend of okay. mine who actually purchased a baby and paid a little extra because it had this beautiful um, pink uh, stain on it. And the first time no it way. said, that came off because it was the newspaper. <laughs> he actually paid a premium for the ink spot. And it actually was, it one really of was an ink spot. What a buddy, baby. Buddy, <laughs> <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. It was not Robin buddy, but it was my not involved. Away. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, uh, I hope they got a refund. No. <laughs> I don't know if they did or not. <laughs> um, I have a quick question. While we're on husbandry, uh, Cage size is always an issue um, or a question, I guess, as far as, you know, do you keep females in bigger ones? Do you keep males in smaller ones? Yada, yada, yada. What are y'all's thoughts on cage sizes? That's a good question. Yeah, it's a great question. Robin, go ahead. I I usually keep everybody in in really similar size enclosures unless I'm unless I'm going to be doing some breeding. And then if I'm doing breeding then I go for the largest enclosure that I can get. Mostly because I want there to be a really wide gradient for temperature. Um as well as a, an enclosure big enough to have a nest box and and all of the stuff right. that you need when you're breeding, but but for basic housing, I keep them in in really similar size enclosures. And what would the dimensions roughly dimensions be on your your typical adult enclosure? Uh, or or gallons or how, however you want to describe it. So two two feet I'm, two foot cubes or three by two by two or. They're rectangles. Smaller. They're pro- they're probably I don't I'm a terrible guesstimator of size. Um, <laughs> I am. <laughs> oh, that's uh, hey, don't get me started There's on that. There's a joke that goes there, but I I won't go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're talking to men. They're bad about <laughs> estimating size too. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I told you the show is pretty fun. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a good size. It's this you know, at work it's the standard um 
you know, commissary size for food grade containers. And then when I'm using when I'm doing a breeding tank it's it's three or four times that size. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Kim, how about you? Great, what do you what do you keep and what do you what do you breed in? Uh they're all um three foot by three three by two by two. Okay, size cages that's, that's just big. to keep them uniform. Yeah, that's big. Because you know, I, I like them to sort of all be the same size and the same look. So that that's um, I don't have special breeding cages. Um, sometimes I place the males in the females' cage, and sometimes it's the other way around. It just sort of depends on the personality of the snake and and all that. Um, yeah, if I could, I'd have them all in these huge, you know, natural cages that I didn't really have to get in and, and clean. But right. I don't have that sort of space, so <laughs> they seem pretty happy in in that size. So they go from those twelve quart cages up to the next size up is a full size three foot cage. Wow, that's I think it's safe to say three by two by two is you know that's that's a big cage. I think most keep most keepers are keeping their chondros in. Buddy, what about you? I I, I know you're set up, but you. Want you share? Uh, I'm everywhere. Um, I've used polycarbonate tubs, which are I think 26 by 22 or 18 by 15 tall. Uh, I've used mm-hmm. 24 by 18 by 18 PVC cages. Um, I've used other adult cages that I think are like 29 18 by 18. And uh, also, I also bought some cages from, cages from Doug this past year, and they are thirty by twenty by right. twenty. So I'm kind of, kind of all over the place a little bit. I found, you know, I kind of, when I move a snake, I kind of watch to see how it reacts. I've had some snakes. I put them into a big cage and they never move, and, they, and then I maybe take and bump them down to a twenty-four by eighteen by eighteen, and they seem to be more comfortable and they're more active. Um, so I just kind of. Figure out how what each snake likes and try to place it in the right size cage so it matches its activity level and, and level of security. Right. Um, listen, buddy. I know you know that we've got about a minute and a half of live radio time left, but obviously, uh, if the ladies can stay on for a little bit longer, we can continue the show. It'll let us record another thirty minutes or so, um, so the listeners uh, they. If they download the show uh, tomorrow or the next day, uh, we can continue on. If it, if anybody needs to go, we certainly understand that. Uh, if you can stay on for a few more minutes, uh, we can continue. Uh, just completely up to you guys. I can stay. Uh, yeah, I can stay. I might need to take a quick break, but I can stay. <laughs> <laughs> By all means. I, I, I can to, stay, too. already gone to the bathroom twice, so... Yeah. Yeah. Biological break. Just don't hang the phone up. Set the phone down. Don't hang up because you cannot call back in. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Keep. Um. Let's keep going down uh, down the list, buddy. Uh, Feeding. This should be pretty straightforward. Um, Rats or mice. uh, Both. Um. Whoever's not taking a bathroom break, uh, go for it. 
Oh, I'm good. Uh, I'll, I'll wait a few minutes. Uh, mice, definitely. Um, uh, mice. Again, it was, yeah, yeah, um, mice. Um, okay. Uh, advice from you. Lord Walder. Uh, to me, mice don't make fat snakes. Of course, your, your feeding schedule um, would determine that as well, but uh, I I think at one point it was he said something about um, better egg calcification and stuff like that, and and um, mm-hmm. I do seem to digest them better, truthfully. And um, uh, are you feeding them frozen, frozen thawed, frozen yes, thawed mice yes. as opposed to live? Yes. And uh, yes. and do you soak the mice in water, or you feed them dry, or? Oh, I, I I saturate. You know, yeah, no, thaw them out in a big pot of water. They go uh-huh. straight from the, you know, maybe dab on a paper towel, but no, they're wet. Yeah. They're wet. Okay. Great. Yeah. I think no. that's the 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 consensus in the community is is what you're doing, but we occasionally we come across people that do things uh, the opposite. So, love to hear the love to hear what y'all are doing. Robin, are you are you still there? I am, and of course I'm going to be contrary. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so rabbits. That, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No. Back in the day, um, Trooper almost fed exclusively rats. You know, he would he would get things up um to size. I I mostly feed mice unless I'm really trying to put weight on an animal. So okay. if I'm trying to put weight on an animal for breeding or if I've got a male who's been fasting for an extremely long time and has lost a fair amount of weight and I'm really trying to put some weight back on, then I then I throw some rats into the mix just to Greg help Maxwell put on some was, weight. Greg Maxwell was almost exclusively a rat feeder as well, and we know the success that he had. right. I like I said, mice are predominantly what I feed because I'm I really don't uh wanna have fat snakes. They they live a lot longer if they uh if they're thin. And they they tend to breed a little bit better. So mice mostly, rats if I'm trying to add weight. I I really mix frozen and fresh killed because freezing okay. you do lose some vitamins. You're losing okay. some vitamin content if you're thawing in water. So water-soluble okay. vitamins, when when frozen stuff is thawed in water, you're losing some vitamin content there. So I try and alternate okay. between fresh-killed and frozen. I still thaw in water, and I still feed okay. really wet rodents because I think it, it helps with the hydration issue. So even a fresh-killed rodent, you'll still uh, hydrate? Not always, but okay. but I think that uh, that it's good if you can to get a mix of fresh killed and frozen. Yeah. Okay. To All help right. kind of balance out that. And then if you've got you know if I've got a, somebody who's really giving me a hard time as far as feeding, um, I'll I'll throw in a chick every once in a while. So. Hmm. Okay. Not not a not a scented, but just a a, a real chick. A real chick, yep. And okay. real chicks okay. tend to help with animals that might be constipated. 
chicks tend to run okay. right through green tree pythons. Huh. All right. <laughs> so, wow. Okay. So great. Yeah, that's what I feed. <laughs> well, now I know what to do with those five million extra chicks that I get in for <laughs> the one that I could the last year's to scent pinkies, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> It's good to feed them out occasionally. They just kind of push everything through. Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) And and I've never had an animal refuse a rodent after I've given it a chick. I've never had the problem with them turning up their nose at something else. Yeah. Uh, All right. Excellent point. Okay. All right. Great. Well, I my answer pretty much mimics what. Robin was just saying, um, I mostly feed mice because um, I think rats put weight on my guys. But when I'm trying to, you know, a female that's laid eggs and I'm trying to put some weight back on, a male that's being, that may need to, uh, he looks like he's losing a bit too much weight, I'll put, um, I'll give him a rat. So I do keep rats in my freezer. I am feeding all frozen thawed now, although that was only as of about a year and a half ago because I have a big um, commercial breeding rat rodent thing. But I just decided it was just... uh, I used to keep my rodents in a a basement, and the temperature was perfect for them year-round. But I don't have that basement in our new house anymore, and uh, keeping them... And our uh, shed, just without a lot of insulation, uh, was just not working well at all. So I decided to switch to all frozen thawed. But I did like to do what Robin said and occasionally, uh, maybe every, I don't know, four feeds or so, when I build my rodents back up, I'd feed out fresh killed. And I'm feeding mine wet as well because I like that hydration. Um, Right. And so that I, I pretty much stick with with that. Um, only time okay. I might deviate from that would be with trying to get babies to eat, but um, I haven't had a whole lot of luck with various scents with stubborn feeders. So pretty much, mice is on the we're menu. Gonna, we're going to talk about that maybe in just a few minutes about getting babies okay. established, because yeah, I'd love to hear y'all's okay. input on that. Um, let's talk for a few minutes about, um, about breeding. The breeding season for most of us is kind of, um, over, except I did, uh, tell Buddy kind of in the pre part of the show, I I know that there are some people that have, that do some quote unquote spring chondro breeding, but I think the majority of chondro keepers try to do their breeding in, in the winter. So maybe we can talk for a minute, uh, and Mel, if you want to start about your breeding regimen, about how, when do you start, how you cycle, uh, et cetera? Um, well, let's see. Uh, currently, I don't have, um, we don't have anything going on. Um, let's see. Uh, lost a couple of larger females recently, so not a lot um, available to breed. <clears throat> Uh, the past That's I too bad. Do. Yeah, I know. It's one of those things that comes with chondro keeping, doesn't it? Um, we all know it. Yeah. 
Um, it shouldn't, but it does. Um, uh, when I um, was keeping different, of course, individual pages, yes, I would do a, a, a little bit of cycling um, and stick with, you know, um, fall breeding. Um, and, I, I mean, as, as far as I don't consider myself near as experienced as everybody else here on the or you know the others, um, and I've had what maybe six clutches. Um, did very well on the first couple that I did, um, and um, had good success along the way. The last clutch I had uh, only yielded. Well, like seven eggs, and I've you know we have three babies out of that. Um, so I've you know not a lot of experience with breeding, but um, I kind of felt like once you got their clock established, that tended to be when they um, go at it again. You know, so sure, um, yeah, that's a great baseline, isn't try, it? Yeah, um, try and hit it again. But as far as you know, um, I you know, I don't I don't know that I have enough experience to say anything other than, you know, yeah, I would drop a few degrees here and um, pair them up, see what happens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> having the whole room, he you know, it's a little different. You can't do individuals, so. Still working on perfecting all of that, and you know, had several pairs together um, this last season, um, but didn't have any luck. But you know, there again, I don't know what the answer is with the whole room heat thing. So we'll see. Isn't it safe? Isn't it safe to say? Isn't it safe to say the most important thing when trying to breed chondros is that you have a male and a female? It is. <laughs> <laughs> and to make sure you put the follow one? together. Uh, yeah. That's right. And compatibility, <laughs> I think, is one of it, too. You know, it's, fine. it's, it's you know, you got to, uh, some just don't like each other. And, you know, yes, so you can plan and make out a, a to-do list or whatever. Yeah, this one's going to go with this one, and, and it doesn't always work that way. You just, you just kind of... I I can just tell you from people that I've talked to with that have tried to breed carpets for year after year after year, and they find out it's two females or it's two males or it's a male and a female that just aren't compatible. It's just it's the most yeah. important thing. You, we can talk about cycling and feeding and temperature drops and this and that, but but gosh, you got to have you know you got to have a first, right? This is true. <laughs> That does work better. That works better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Robin, Robin, how about you? Um, I'm kind of in the same boat with Mel. I don't have a ton of experience, but I have, um, you know, I have watched Trooper breed green tree pythons, and he he wrote in a couple of his works that the only time that he never got eggs or the only season, the month that he didn't get eggs was August. That other than that, he had gotten 
green tree python eggs every month of the year except every, August. Every month of the year. That's amazing. So, and I, I've had animals go at different times of the year. Like you said, the most important things are, are having a male and a female. And mm-hmm. um, my, and we all giggled. I don't know about Mel and Kim, but I've had more green tree pythons missexed, I think, than any other yep. snake I've ever worked with. <laughs> really? So, Wow. I actually yes, I've had uh I had a green tree python that was marked as a male for ten years and that animal had been sexed by Trooper and Rico and a couple other folks that I won't name and uh more than Thank five you. people had sexed that animal <laughs> and um marked it as a boy and it was a girl. Yep. So she didn't wow, get married with her cat, first right? Shem. <laughs> Her name's Shem. <laughs> so, awesome. She didn't. She didn't get paired with a boy until she was eleven or twelve years old because she had always been marked as a boy. Wow. So the first I, um, time I the first. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, please go ahead. I was, was going to say the first time I probed an adult female green tree, and I've been used to, to probing many adult carpets. She probed so deep, I was convinced she was a male for sure. But I videotaped it, and I sent Marshall Mendez a video of it because it was sold as an adult breeder female, but I probed it. And she probed so deep, I thought for sure it was a male. I sent the video to Marshall, and he goes, no, that, that's a female. I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, I just I was shocked at how deep she probed. And she, she yeah. laid 24 eggs for me this year. Boy. Hmm. <laughs> Congratulations on your eggs. So well, yeah, they I, they have they haven't hatched yet, but fingers are crossed. But I I'm, I'm just I'm telling you, you know right. when, when I made that statement about a male and a female, I mean it, it's true. You it's and really I think true. in green trees, so many people go on based on sheds, you know, a lot of people go based on sheds, they see sperm plugs. Um I think it's just harder than a lot of people are led to believe to really know if you have a male or female 100% of the time. That's true. Yeah, until so, you see the either incorrect or correct behavior. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So when I, uh, when I first started pairing animals, of course, I called Trooper and I said, any advice? And he said, you know, make sure you've got a boy and a girl and keep them together until she lays eggs. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, hey, classic trooper. Don't don't pull her out when you see it. You know, don't pull him out when you see a pre-lay shed. You can get him out of there when she starts laying. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, wow. So, and uh, the other thing that he he told me or that I did was I as soon as I put the pair together, I put the nest box in so that okay. she had access to it. Now, I have had girls go in and barricade themselves in the nest box, <laughs> and they won't let the male in. <laughs> but for the most part, having the nest box in there early kind of works out. <laughs> okay. So... That's kind of how I do it. I I drop the temperatures and put them together, and I've had I've had a male and a female in together for more than a year. 
before before the female decided to to lay eggs, and that was a spring breeding. Wow. So you don't you never separate them. You literally you just put them in there and just leave them. You know you don't separate. That's what he said. Do you, and, do you try to you feed? To see, do you feed during that oh, time. I do, yeah, I do feed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I do feed most of the time. If the male's in there and he's he's breeding and she's letting him breed, he won't feed, and she'll keep okay. feeding until she's ready to stop. And I've I've been lucky and never had any trouble. You get to see some right. pretty interesting behaviors when they're in there together for that long. So the males do a lot of guarding of females, which is really cool to watch, especially hmm. when the females are in shed. The male's going to sit right on top of her and guard her. And they get really? pretty aggressive about it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. I've got yep. some great pictures of a of a female in shed. She went into the nest box because it was, you know, hidden and kind of, you know, there was some moss in there, so it was a little humid. And he went in and sat on top of her, and every time I tried to peek, he would try and hide her with his body. And then if I kept being persistent, he'd start striking. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, you get to see some pretty cool stuff that way. That's it, unless there's any other questions. (laughs) You, For me. People talk about dropping temperatures. Are you guys talking about dropping strictly nighttime temperatures, basking temperatures, daytime temperatures? When when you cycle and you, quote, drop temperatures, what, what does that mean? It's nighttime uh, temperatures me, it was, for me. Yeah, it was just nighttime temperatures. Nighttime. Okay. Yeah. And and for me, sometimes it's it's both. So I... When I'm breeding at work, I have them in a really large enclosure, and they can decide by basing you know where they want to put themselves. The temperatures can go from ninety ninety two all the way into the sixties, and the wow. animals okay. kind awesome. of put themselves where they're gonna go yep. And okay, I've tried um, not dropping temperatures, too, just keeping my same stable temperatures, and I've had success that way. I've had success by <clears throat> excuse me, dropping the temperatures when they're separate from one another and then putting them together. I've had success when I haven't dropped temperatures until after I've put them together. Um, yes. So I, for me, it, and I'm not always good at eyeballing it, but um, what Greg Stevens has said, Many times, you know, watching that female and seeing, um, just having an eye for when she looks like she's headed the right direction with follicle development. Um, mm-hmm. And I can't always see it, but um, I know that I, I thought I was seeing it last year, and I put a female, um, because she tends to be a cage garter, she's just she doesn't like her cage to be invaded. I actually put her in with with a male who totally ignored her, and I thought, what what's going on here? So I I, I took that female out, and there was another quote unquote female I thought was looking plump. <laughs> so <laughs> right, here we I go. put that quote unquote female in with the male, and she promptly started courting him. <laughs> 
<laughs> now I knew that my male, he was a proven male. I knew that he was male, but the female, she male, um, was yeah, unproven. Male. And so I knew uh-huh. based on that that the female that I had originally put in with popcorn was, in fact, giving off that right smell because the she male picked it up on popcorn. So I ended up, you know, being able to get my pears all worked out, but I figured out, thankfully, Popcorn just slept through it all, or I don't know what, he, he was off in La La Land and let Raven just, you know, court him for a while till I realized what was going on and was able to <laughs> am- amicably get them separated without any issues. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, I was a little disappointed that that female turned out to be a, a male, but... A male. Uh, anyway, we'll... we'll We'll get it all worked out eventually. I'll get eggs from him, but not from him. <laughs> I, I hope. I, anyway. <laughs> I actually bred a pair one time, and I and I got fertile eggs, and and everything was fine. I never saw that male touch her. They were yeah. never oh, almost well, so never coiled hope. together. Yeah. I mean, nope. he mm-hmm. was stealthy as he could be, I guess, because. I never saw a thing. They were never coiled up together. He must have, you wow. know, in the middle we, we of the night when I was Yeah, he was pretty stealthy because I never the saw them together. I, yeah. I see we had a situation like that, probably, too. Yeah. Probably uh, 25% of my carpets that uh, lay eggs, I never see them, I never see them uh, link. Yep. yep. Wow. So he he might have been waiting until you weren't looking. (laughs) I have kept pairs together for extended periods of time, too, and I've had sort of um, some success with it and some not, um, especially if one or the other happens to be a very aggressive feeder. I've had some accidental, you know, one grabs the other, I've had um, a which bit of that always too. freaks me out. Um, yeah. But yeah, what Robin was saying is interesting. Seeing uh, that uh, guarding behavior, or that I'm ignoring you behavior, or or whatever. And um, I, I've done that especially when I can't figure out when the female cycle is. And sometimes I still ha- I think females just some are more fertile than others. And, and cycle more readily, or maybe I haven't figured out what triggers them. But I've also, I have produced uh, babies that, uh, not in the dead of winter, but anywhere from, well, I say the dead, like the, from like Valentine's Day around through September, right. I've produced babies. So it's whenever I think that the female is looking extra plump and, um, more often than not, I'll sort of put them together if I'm not seeing any activity for, you know, a month or so. They could be being sneaky about it, but I'll separate them and then maybe try them in another month. Um, right. Mm. And yeah. Okay. So I'm, I haven't figured out the – I'm not Cupid yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I what you were saying is true. I did have one pair where both both animals were really aggressive feeders and I did have you know, I did have a couple times where somebody would snatch somebody else up off of a perch. And so I would separate mm-hmm. those guys and, and reintroduce later. Yeah. Okay. It's true. 
Yeah, I've always been hesitant to feed um, two animals in the same cage. I haven't tried it. Um, I've just been hesitant to do it. Yeah. It can be a little <clears throat> nerve-wracking. You double-tongue yeah. it and wait for them to get yeah, yeah. a little separated from each other. Or I try and catch them first thing, sometimes even before the lights go out. Yep. Okay. Um, and I can get the attention yeah. of one and distract the other. I mean, it's a little – It's um. It can be tricky. Right. Yeah. I've I've done it and, you know, had not any issues. And then I had uh, a pair that were together and I wasn't going to feed them. I happened to be feeding some younger right. snakes. And mm-hmm. then, when this was, again, was they were all over the place. So just walking through the living room and I mm-hmm. guess they smelled um, yeah. You know, yeah. just my movement in front of the cage, and she grabbed him and, you know, mm-hmm. called him up. It was like, it was, wow. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah. Yeah, that was fun getting those yeah. two apart. Actually, huh? Yeah. Actually, I have a tip Listerine. Okay. So if uh, you have two yeah. snakes that grab mm-hmm. each other, a little bit of Listerine in the mouth, will, in the mouth will make them let go of each mm-hmm. other. That also works if they've snatched you up. You, yes. <laughs> yes. So. Do, you, do you spray? You try to spray it on, or you just splash it on, or pour it on, or just what do you pour do? Pour a little. You can pour a little in, or if you uh, if you actually are like me and you have small bottles of Listerine kind of laying about, you can put a syringe <laughs> with it and have a syringe full and okay. ready to go. Great. I don't usually right. need that for my green tree pythons, but I've got a couple other animals that have been known to snatch <laughs> snatch <Okay>. people up. <laughs> right. Good tip, Listerine. Okay, awesome. It's tried and tested. It will even make a Gila monster let loose. Just FYI. <laughs> Ouch. Geckos, toke geckos. I didn't try it on myself with the Gila monster. The other ones I kind of tested on myself, but yeah. Toke geckos, <laughs> Lichianus, Listerine. And it's now great I'm going to ask you animals. how you got bitten by. What were you doing to get bitten by a Gila monster? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't get bitten by a Gila monster, but I, that was what we wanted to test the Listerine on. So what uh, I did was gotcha. I, I, I gave the I gave the Gila uh, a mouse. And then I put a little bit of Listerine on the mouse, and the Gila spit it out. Okay. Ah. So And Gila's don't spit anything out. <laughs> so then I tried to offer it back to him, and he wouldn't take it. So then I rinsed it off with water, and he took it and ate it and wouldn't let it go. So Listerine works. Hmm. Listerine works. Yep. And I, I had a couple of Timors that would grab each other up all the time, even if there wasn't food around. So I ended up using Listerine on those guys a lot. Good tip. <laughs> Good tip. Add, add Listerine and syringe to your snake room. To the snake room. Yep. Yeah. It's always a good thing to have. <laughs> Along with your other strange things you might have, like KY jelly and odd trips to the, to the pharmacy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yep, preparation H. Um, yep, 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 yep. yep. 
powdered sugar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> who um who has maternally incubated chondro eggs of you three? I have. I have, Kim. Okay. Tell us um tell us how that went. I didn't know what you I was go doing. First, Kim. <laughs> I did not know what I was doing and I thought it would be um cooler in my mind than I think it sort of turned out. Actually it went pretty okay. well. I didn't have any um again I, I I think I maybe didn't have initially humidity high enough and I had to work on that a little bit and made making making sure that the nest box was warm enough and and all that but got through all that the part that where it went wrong for me was when they started hatching um i i took the the top off the nest box so she could exit whenever she needed to well i I don't know what i did wrong at this point but um she ended up squishing oh i lost i think three babies from being squished by her yeah after they hatched and so again, I don't know what I did. Should I have pulled her off at that point? I don't know, but that upset me enough that I thought I'm not doing it. as cool as that was. I'm not doing that again. Um, and then I had a, I had a, it was a, ended up being a smaller clutch. It was a smaller female. So losing those three was, um, yeah, was detrimental. My, my, yeah, and the, um, I had. A couple of eggs too that um surprisingly the to me anyway that they seem to die full term, which you know i I occasionally have those when I artificially incubate too, so may, that was probably something that I didn't provide the right humidity or, or temperature um, for her, but anyway it was uh it was neat i i had, that was a goal to do that one time um and I don't think that I would do it again, but it was okay. Neat the one time I did it. I, Robin, what, I how have about a, you? I have a disaster story also. Oh, no. So <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually have two disaster stories. So I tried, the, I, tried art of, or I tried maternal incubation the first time I bred green tree pythons. And um, this female had a beautiful clutch and was taking great care of it. And um, it was at work, so I was off for a day or two, and someone thought that they were helping me out and that the female looked dehydrated, so they they sprayed her in the box. (gasps) So, yes. On on top of the eggs. Oh, yeah. She's coiled around the eggs, and and they gave her just a little spritz in the box. Okay. So uh, when I came in a couple of days later, um, you could smell the dead mm. eggs well, all oh the goodness. way <laughs> down the line. So mm. and they were all rotten. They were all rotten. So and there were oh. there were ba- there were babies in every egg. So so that was a bummer. So then the next time I tried that, I actually had the female. Um, in a nest box that had a plexiglass side to it, and it, she was on exhibit with her eggs. And um, and that was a lot of fun. And yeah. uh, she she exhibited some really cool behaviors 
one of which was really impressive, and that was every time I opened the enclosure, she would um, she would block the opening of the nest box, which was facing the the door, with her entire mouth. So wow, like really? Seeing a, a mouthful of teeth. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> Coming at you, which was pretty impressive. Um, unfortunately, she had nothing but slugs. And I didn't realize it because I hadn't really poked around a bunch. And so a couple of weeks into this, I kind of got the whiff of, hmm, something's not right there, and kind of pulled her off and realized that she, you know, she had one fertile egg in there, and it had gotten mashed and with the slugs. So I didn't get anything out of any of the maternal incubations. Either of the maternal incubations I tried. So, hmm. I've never, yeah. I've never done it. I've, uh, you know, like I've, I've always wanted to. Um, and I think the, um, I don't know. I guess the, the ones that have laid for me, there was only one I thought, wow, she'd make a great mom as far as you know, doing it all on her own. The others. I may have had to stuff in a nest box or something, you know. So it's like um, it was uh, one of my Cyclops females, but she was <clears throat> uh, pretty small. And so I thought, you know, that would be way too hard for her to go that long. Um, right. So I I chose not to do it. I mean, um, uh, she was probably only... Four hundred and something grams after laying. I thought, yeah, that's mm. that's just, yeah. So I was glad I decided not. To, but she would, oh yeah. But I mean, you know, um, it, everything that she, she was one of those textbook, you know, everything just yeah. exactly right, you know. And um, so she would have been a perfect candidate had she been a little bigger. Of course, she might have done just fine. I just was too afraid to do it. Right. Um, but yeah, one of these days, I would love to do maternal intubation. You see great about, um, results, and then you see horror stories, and so it's like, ah. <laughs> how about um, how about your y'all's artificial incubation techniques? What what do you guys uh, what have you tried in the past, or what have you found works best? Uh, let's see. Um, I have. Uh, uh, my best friend built a coolabator, coolerbator, yep. excuse me, um, uh, in which I borrowed, um, tweaked a bit, um, and it worked perfectly every time I've incubated a clutch. So, um, and it's funny because we kind of pass it back and forth now. Um, Okay. Keep saying, yeah, I'm cool make one, you know, or we, yeah, yeah. The um, was it Damon that um, is that who had done the plans for one originally? I guess um, just your basic igloo cooler, and um, you know, um, heat cable, uh, restaurant steel pans at the bottom. Um. Yeah. Uh. It it was great. Um. Maintain what temp, temperature. What temperature? What, what temperature? Mel? Eighty. Eighty-seven point five. Um. Okay. All the way through. Okay. 
Okay, straight yeah. bait. Straight, yeah. Robin, how about you? Same thing. Greg Stevens built me a, a beautiful cooler baiter and uh eighty seven five, no substrate, straight through. Okay. The Sims yeah. boxes, if you guys haven't seen the Sims boxes, um, which are made for reptile eggs with no substrate method, those work pretty nice inside the cooler. Yeah, I, you guys um also didn't do substrate. Um sorry to interrupt. Just no, straight no. straight water. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Same here and I've done the um this the let's see, one week cooler, however many weeks higher and then the last week uh-huh. or so. Cooler I've um I've had success doing that, but now that I'm seem to have some clutches that are overlapping, I ended up going the uh pretty much solid 30.5 throughout um although I will keep it a little bit cooler for the first few days to make sure any weaker eggs aren't overwhelmed and then bump it up and keep it going for you know 52 3 4 days something like that so um I've had both methods work no substrate I've never used substrate and I have a cooler that I I made um, I think mimicking, I think Marshall used to have information up on his, when he had a website. Up, and I think I mimicked that. So, tweaked it over the years. Still don't think I have it perfect, but it's done pretty well. And, um, um, Buddy, I know you, you do this really the same thing, right? No, yep. no substrate. Yep. 87.5, no straight bake. 87.8. Eighty-seven, eight. Oh, okay. Straight bake. Yeah, Ooh. I think it was just thirty point five. Yeah. Okay. Fine. You guys uh, measure the. The only uh, thing I probably. No, oh. oh, go ahead. The only thing I may do differently. I've heard a lot of de- debate over whether to keep the thermostat probe, at, you know, uh-huh. on the egg or outside the box. Yep. I cannot get my temperatures to cooperate outside the box. I've been a put it between two eggs person from the get-go, and every time I try it, otherwise I can't get my uh, temperatures to stabilize for me. So I'm still one of those weirdos that puts it right up against the the eggs. That's interesting. That's exactly what I was going to ask. You know, do you incubate at the incubator? temperature or inside the egg box and I was going to ask mm-hmm. you because a lot of times I'll have you know multiple egg boxes in in a single incubator and so obviously yeah. I mean I I incubate at the you know I put the temperature probe in the incubator and then I'll have varying temperatures in in each individual egg box depending on how far along yeah. they are in the yeah. in the cycle Mhm so Yeah, yeah I sort of have figured out question. Through the years, uh, depending on which egg box is where, which one where it is warmer, so I'll know which boxes consistently hatch sooner at that at that temperature. But my temperatures, because I'm, I don't have any fans in my um, in my cooler to circulate air. That's one thing I would like to add. So I'm 
opening every two days or so to refresh the air and and all. And when I do that, of course, even though I've got heat sinks in there with, you know, bottles of water, it's still I get a, you know, fluctuation in that temperature and uh, my thermostat won't overshoot nearly as badly if I'm inside an egg box rather than trying to monitor the actual um, gotcha. incubator temperature. Gotcha. But that, that, that's just the way my way my setup has been sort of tweaked over the years. Yes, no, that that makes sense. Buddy, do you do you monitor your individual egg box temperatures inside the incubator? I've done it both ways. When I had a coolibator, I actually uh, did just what Kim would describe. I'd take the thermostat probe and just put it in the egg box uh, in contact with some eggs and just let it ride that way. And then when I built the new cabinet-style incubator, I called Rico and said, hey, what are you doing? And he told me, and then I uh, talked to Greg Stevens. Unfortunately, Greg lives close enough away, close enough I was able to drive to his place, see firsthand how he had his setup, and then just kind of mimic how he did it. And so in the cabinet style, I just monitor the main chamber temps, and I don't – I monitor the egg box temps, but the thermostat is set mm-hmm. in the main chamber of the incubator itself. Yeah. That's exactly what I do, and it's interesting to see as the clutch gets along my my – Egg box temperatures will start out exactly the same as my my um, incubator temperatures, but as they progress, those, those egg box temperatures will get warmer and warmer and warmer. And right now, I'm almost a full degree higher, you know, than my just what it's set in the incubator itself. It's because they're, right. they're that exothermic process of those eggs getting closer and closer. It's cool to watch. Yep, definitely. All right, we're uh, we're getting dangerously close to time. It's going to cut us off here pretty soon, and when it does, it's just going to there's not going to be any warning. We're just going to all be off. So if that happens, don't feel like we just cut you off because we don't want to listen to what you're saying anymore. But um, <laughs> Obviously, this has been a great this has been a great show. I can speak for Buddy. This has been one of the best shows we've done. We've really appreciated and, and enjoyed y'all's time. Well, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, it's been uh, fun we, talking to you I guys. enjoyed it. <laughs> yep. Great. Well, we're all doing what we enjoy doing. We're talking about Chondro, so we could probably exactly. keep on talking. <laughs> True. Let's do yeah. it till they cut us off. Let's talk about neonates briefly. Um, we talked about sinning. Um, how do you how do you establish your babies? What do you do? You wait till they shed before you offer food, and what's your first food offering? Um, let's see. I guess I'm first, right? Well, um, again, I haven't had a ton of experience. Um, my first experience with chondro. Um, breeding, um, I ended up with 41 babies all at once. Um, I had two clutches hatched. Yeah. Yeah. And you haven't had a lot of experience. Can you believe it? 41. Um, Trial by fire. uh, I had um, uh, my roux had uh, 26 eggs, 25 
hatched. One crapped out just a few days before hatching. And uh, then uh, my Jaya gal had 17 that hatched just a few days after those. Um, and so, yeah, the um, the first 25 were a joint project between me and my friend Chris, who actually owned the incubator. Um, but, of course, they're at my house, and um, I was to establish them. So, yeah, I had 41 babies to start. Um, it, it was interesting, um, to say the least. Uh, fortunately, I did have... Um, Rico to help and advise. Um, thank goodness he was um, around to give me, you know, any tips, pointers, whatever. Um, I think for the first, Mel, was, the, uh, I, hey Mel, was was I, Rico physically close? I mean, did Rico could he come literally he physically was. help you, or did you just okay? Wow, that's awesome. Um, as, as far as uh, uh, as far as no, not that physically close to help me with the babies, no. But um, from here, um, Rico is about two hours away. Um, okay. I, I tended to visit uh, Rico about three or four times a year. Um, okay. And and you know, so we did. We we became very close. Um, so I could. Pick up the phone anytime, um, and you know. The, so for these clutches, I did wait for sheds, um, you know, and and then started. Um, and it was, I guess, I just kind of uh, watched and tried his technique. Um, for the most part, you know, I had uh, good success. Um, and yeah, there were quite a few out of 41, you can imagine. Um, <laughs> it's funny, you know, you go around Martin, little pegs, uh, who's eaten and who's not. And it's depressing when you see only a few pegs and that three, three racks together of babies. But, um, mm. Mm. uh, chip down did help a lot. So I did do some scenting. Um, you know, the the troubled ones. Um, I did do some assist feeding, um, and it very hard, delicate process um, for me to be trying it. Uh, well, I guess pretty risky. I know the condos are so delicate, and you you know you got to worry about all that stuff. But um, I, I did have a lot of success just doing pinky heads in the mouth and getting them established. So great. Um great. I you know, I I did fine. Um I got everybody eating and going. I mean, I had a few that were super hard troublesome guys that weren't established established and we divided up our clutch and um you know, Chris later had some issues, and I took them back and, and, you know, tried to get them going. But um, I did seem to have a knack for it, I guess, and um, I could get them to eat. I just am is more stubborn than they were. Um, the fun part about the 41 It's a female thing. It's a female rats, thing. 
Yeah, it's a female thing. Um, uh, we also had a tornado um, at that time. I don't know if you... Um, uh, tornado came through uh, when the babies were... Um, oh, man, I don't remember if they were just a, a couple of weeks or what. Um, and so we lost power for about a week. So um, I would actually carry all the baby racks outside in the sun <laughs> to keep them warm wow. during the power outage in the tornado. And literally one time I had oh to put gosh. them in the back of the van because it heated up faster than anything else. But, yeah, that's my story with babies. But um, I... I um, I know people have issues about assist feeding, and it's one of those, yeah, well, you know, if it's not going to eat, it's not going to eat. But um, just a little pinky head, uh, get it in their mouth, and, you know, after a couple of times of that and they get food in their belly, they seem to be responsive um, to um, feeding. So um, I've had good luck with that. And so I've done okay as far as... um, getting the babies established and eating. So very good. Yeah. Okay, Robin. So I I mostly try with a pink head and I usually try before the first shed. Okay. I'm uh I'm one of those weird ones that go before the first shed. I did have one little kid one time that I when I was first starting out, I offered uh, whole pinks, and I had one baby immediately grab a pinky, which I was really excited about. And it was a tiny little pinky, and he swallowed it, and I was very excited, and then he brought it back up. Uh-huh. And I thought, uh, that's probably too big a meal for the first time when they still have a lot of yolk and stuff in them. And if you've ever necropsied, a baby green tree python, they have a ton of fat bodies um, yeah. around and a ton of of uh, built-up reserves. So I decided that what? for the first meal I would go small and always do a pink head initially and uh, try and do it before the first shed when they're still really feisty. Okay, I was going to ask what your theory was about uh, mm-hmm. trying before the first shed if they have a lot of uh, fat built up, but it's because you think they're 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 more feisty and likely to to, to strike at that point. They're pretty they're pretty feisty before the first shed. Yeah. Okay. okay. And I've had a lot of them take yeah. a pink head before the first shed, and then they'll start feeding after they shed. Okay. So that's okay. Awesome. That's just kind of the way I work. That's what yeah, you do. I'm, I'm sort of this. I'm sort of the same way as as Robin that I uh, I I will attempt to feed before the fe- first shed as well. Um, I haven't tried just doing pink heads because um, I haven't ever had one bring up even the tiny little guys, if uh, like the little runts. Um, I've had them take a pinky and not. I haven't ever had one regurge on me. I'm so I haven't even thought about just doing a pinky head, but I won't push it too much before the first shed if they show interest. Um, yeah. And then I'll yeah. do it, but I don't put much effort into forcing the issue before the shed. 
um, okay. like I will after they should. Um, I haven't, honestly, either Chick Down is going to work really quickly or it's not going to work at all. Right. I haven't had a whole lot of luck with Chick Down. I'm not, I don't go really crazy with different scents either because I'm paranoid about introducing something into their gut that <laughs> might make them sick. So I've tried gerbil, rat, um, <laughs> mouse hair. I will heat them up in with other rats or mice that I'm thawing out. Um, I've tried heating the head with a light bulb to make it super hot. Um, I've uh, poked a sex probe in the top of the pinky's head and squeezed the brain out and brained them. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it do All of these sometimes work, sometimes don't. Um, I do uh, assist feed. I'm, I'm sort of on the fence about that, too. I, gr- I don't disagree with the people who choose not to assist feed, but right. I also feel like I'm playing... Um, Mother Nature or God in this case that I have chosen to put these pairs together and produce these babies and so I feel like I need to try to the best of my ability to get them to eat. I have found that it seems like that 10 week mark, I think it was Rich Culver that told me that way back when, it's like if you can get them to 10 weeks they're probably going to do okay Um, Mm. because sometimes Prior to that, they just keel over for, for who knows what reason, heart, who knows. Um, and those that, and sometimes you've got feeders that are, or snakes that aren't eating because there's potentially something wrong with them. You know, you have a clutch of right. 20 eggs. Right. You really expect all of them to be perfect. No. Yep. I mean, that's taken a lot of babies to sort of get past. No, no, I can, I can make them live. Well, sometimes something's just not right in them that's, you know, they're not wanting to eat because they're not right. Um, So you have to sort of, I have to figure out where to draw that line because it's it's hard to watch them wither, (laughs) wither away. Um, So I do do assist feed, uh, or at least with the pinky heads, I will get them striking like crazy and have the pinky head on a sex a sexing probe and you know sort of do the the pinky head jam. Yep. It, it, that, it, that, yeah. That's hard to do. Oh my gosh, that's really hard to do. But if you can get it in there angled right, then there's yeah. no you don't have to get your hands on them, and they'll swallow it. Um, so you'll put the head. So anyway, you'll put the pinky, you'll put the you'll put the pinky head on a probe, and then if uh-huh. it opens its mouth, you just jam it in the back of its throat. What? Um, That's why the animal. No, it's got to be a coordinated effort between you and the snake. So they have to be, they have to, for it to be at least in my experience effective, they have to strike forward at it. If they just are gaping at you like, oh, I'm so tired of this, and you jam it in there, if they don't clamp closed on it, it won't work because you've got it. The suction from the inside of the pinky will make it stick to the probe. And okay. You no, know, it'll it won't. And it's got to be straight. It can't be cockeyed in their mouth because they'll just rub it out or gape and right. you know let it drop. Um, okay. It's it's obnoxious, but it works <laughs> if you've got a it striker. Works. I mean, sometimes they're sometimes they're runners and they don't strike, 
And then that's, yeah. you can't yep. use that technique. Yeah, I actually named one of my little babies uh, Flojo because it was that bad of a <laughs> That is not a good nickname for a chondro. Yeah. No, well, I had a bane. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bane, so, bane of my um, existence. It, you, you literally opened up the tub, and before you could even think about trying, um, of course, it was toward the bottom of the rack. It was out the tub and across the floor. Yeah. That's how bad it was. Yeah. So, you know, slow Joe. Slow Joe. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I have wanted to name one Verity because they do um, sort of do what Verity does in that book, and they, although they don't grab their tail and spin, they launch themselves. Yeah, <laughs> they just yeah. go boing and fly out of the tub. So I have never replaced the carpet in my snake room because I'm afraid if I put laminate down or linoleum or something, they'll go splat instead of hit the plush carpet and bounce. <laughs> One of the tricks that that I learned from feeding babies and feeding lots of babies is to use a a mm-hmm. mug warmer or a candle warmer. And I put I put my pinks in a coffee cup and stick it on that and it keeps them hot so that I can oh. keep keep feeding. Holy moly, that's what I can use that thing for. That's, That's exactly fabulous. what it's good for. And it keeps the food warm because you know how fast that water cools off. Yes. And the yeah. babies like their stuff warm. And and yeah. after I've been sitting on the floor for three hours trying to get those little monsters uh-huh. to eat, I can barely get up to walk yeah. to the kitchen to heat up the water again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My feet have fallen asleep. I've got to go find my candle warmer now. <laughs> and all sorts of good tips. All sorts of good tips. Good. I I assist feed also because I really do. I mean, green tree pythons in the wild are are not rodent eaters. They mostly no. probably yeah. feed on right. amphibians and lizards. So right. to expect a baby, you know, to expect a baby to come out and want to eat, you know, a pinky head or a pinky, I think is asking a little bit much. So that's somebody needs to create, create um, a chondro pellets or something <laughs> that are just <laughs> <laughs> mushed that's up a good frog idea. or Kim? Uh, uh, yeah, on, I've, I, uh, well, so this uh, at this event. We were at yesterday. I had uh, somebody come by and say, "You know, these guys are potentially eating these." Oh, he was telling me all about the insects mm-hmm. there, where these guys are from. And I said, "Oh, well, the closest I have to that is a, around here. So, like I had crickets mm-hmm. for a lizard that I had." And I said, "I tried cricket. That didn't work. <laughs> so I have tried right. something weird, uh, a cricket. And uh, I have rubbed, I have rubbed the frog, and I've rubbed the lizard." And neither one of those right. worked. I think it's the pinky. They just mm. not that I think pinkies really have much smell, to be honest. Right. I mean, what is there to smell? And we've and then we heated yeah. them in hot water. What yeah. what is there to smell? So we're we're fighting against instinct. I definitely agree with that. There there is a company that makes reptile sausage, New Balance reptile yeah. sausage, and I have. I have actually have had luck with um, 
cobras eating that, like king cobras like the reptile sausage, but it is not <laughs> good when it comes out the other end. <laughs> oh, oh, my no, goodness. No. Yeah. It is it is really not a good thing when it comes out the other side. Mm. <laughs> Ladies, we are literally we're one minute away from going. So instead of just being cut off rudely, I'd like to, uh, Buddy and I would both would like to thank you very much for your participation. Like I said, this has been a fantastic show. I can't thank you enough for participating. It's been yep, really please. fun. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yes, thank I, you. 